most wonderful book of the... Whoa, what's, uh, what's with all the cookies? You know, just in case. In case of what? Dude, we have an episode to record. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point. How so? Last episode in December. Right, uh... So we have to do the giant size winter special. Uh, Jay, we are not remotely prepared for a winter special. You know, I was thinking about that, but actually, why not? Like, we've had the Corbos done for weeks. Right, I, I guess. And Kyle said he'd interview us. I mean, I guess that's kind of a tradition at this point. And I emailed a bunch of our previous guest hosts to come in and help. Oh, really? That seems like a lot to coordinate. Coordinate? What? No, no, no. I just told them when we were recording and said if they were free, they should drop by. What? Jay Rachel Edgerton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 89 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. And welcome to our second annual winter giant size special, which is going to be full of us saying a lot of things into microphones and also awesomeness. Oh man, I am actually pretty excited about this one because, you know, we, we get a lot of emails, we get a lot of questions from listeners, and I'd say about half of those are, when are you going to cover insert listeners' favorite series here. And of those, probably about half are asking about Excalibur. Yeah, and those listeners, you are not wrong. Excalibur is amazing. It's one of our favorite series as well. And to finally answer your question, today. Today we are going to talk about Excalibur. We're going to talk about the first Excalibur special, The Sword is Drawn. This came out, I think, a little bit before the main series, so we're not going to toss that straight into the rotation after it. But because it's our podcast and it's our damn winter special and we get to talk about whatever we want, it's Excalibur today. Yes. Now, technically, we should have done a lot of the Captain Britain stuff that comes chronologically first. But Jay, like you said, it's a winter special. Why would we not do something super awesome? I mean, last year was God Loves Man Kills. So this year, the sword is drawn. Well, and as we were planning up to this, one of the things when we were sort of looking at whether we should do Captain Britain first or just dive into Excalibur. We were looking at sort of how we had read the comics first, and like most American readers, we came to Captain Britain by way of Excalibur. Our first experience with Excalibur was basically cold. We weren't familiar with a lot of the characters. We weren't familiar with the universe. And so while we're going to be providing a lot more of that context as we go through Excalibur here, we still wanted to reflect that to some extent in the order in which we discussed the series. So we've got that going on. We've got a couple other things on board. And like I mentioned in the cold open, Kyle is going to be interviewing us. And we also have the second annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence. Yes, we are the definitive experts in the entire world, according to us right now. And so these are very, very official. And if people who win the mask, they can even get a physical copy of the award. We'll get to that more later. Again, reminder, this is in fact a giant size winter special. If you were listening on a commute, if you usually count on us being under an hour, which we usually are, that's not going to fly this week. Time you're listening accordingly. Yes, you can just split it at the one hour mark in the middle of a sentence. And then when you listen to it again, you'll forget where we were and it'll be very confusing. Or, you know, however. It'll be great. It'll be just like jumping into Excalibur with no knowledge of Captain Britain. (laughs) Nice segue. Okay, so as far as Excalibur, before we jump into The Sword is Drawn, I'd kind of like to talk about the state of the X universe at the time and also about Excalibur as a book in general. So let's do that. So let's look a little bit at where this falls contextually. We're coming right out of Fall of the Mutants, you know, X-Men's first big crossover event. And suddenly there's this new series. What's going on? The series is by, of course, Chris Claremont, and the art's by Alan Davis. Now, if you've been following our show or were following comics at the time, you would know Alan Davis as that dude that keeps coming in to draw annuals and the occasional issue, and often draws issues where Captain Britain and Megan appear. You may also recognize him as the guy who draws the best hair in the Marvel Universe. Super swoopy, super heroic, super epic. 
I think Troy and Abed mentioned this in a Community Christmas episode, that the food and Christmas specials, like Claymation Christmas specials, looks really, really good and really tasty. Yeah, I that's feel... in the tag to Abed's Uncontrollable Christmas. Yeah, and I feel like Alan Davis's hair, I'm not saying I'm going to eat the hair he draws, mind you, but I kind of want to touch it. I just want to like put my hands on the outlines of that hair and just feel how poofy it is. And it just seems like it would be really satisfying. And then it would just spring back perfectly. Right, exactly. So if I'm ever a comic book character, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Well, probably the first thing I'm going to do is get killed in the background of a panel, but you know, whatever. No, no. The first thing we did was arrest Jubilee. We've already been there. You're talking about a hypothetical that's already taken place. Oh, yeah. uh, Good point. So basically where the series came from was Chris Claremont really wanting to work with Alan Davis on an X book. Now, we found some quotes from interviews from Amazing Heroes and Modern Masters, and uh, we actually found these at the Secrets Behind the X-Men blog, which we'll go ahead and link to in the As Mentioned. We get a lot of our information from here. Now, Claremont at this point had been sort of the stepfather of the X-Line, and he'd also been doing a lot of work on Marvel UK. And Davis was concerned about the idea of working on a core X-Book. He thought that he would basically be shoehorned into Marvel House style, which he wasn't really working in. And I mean, you can see if you look at his stuff, what a bad fit that would be. And Excalibur was just far enough to the fringe that he basically got to keep doing his own thing. This was, I think, a pretty common approach at the time, really still is. It's what got Bill Sienkiewicz on, for instance, New Mutants and Moon Knight, the idea that when you have someone coming in with an art style that's significantly diagonal to house style or the mainstream, you start them off on sort of side books, not the big central titles. Yeah. Now, as for why this was specifically Excalibur, why this ended up with the premise it did, we found a quote from Chris Claremont here from an interview in Amazing Heroes, and we actually found that interview at a blog called Secrets Behind the X-Men, which we'll link to in the As Mentioned post. Yeah, I should say, if you are interested in the really gritty how the sausage gets made stuff, it's a great blog to check out. Absolutely. So, says Claremont, I began figuring out what I could do with the X-Men who weren't going to be in the fall of the mutants, like Kitty and Nightcrawler, because I knew if I didn't do anything with them, other people would leap forward like rabid wolves to heist them. Alan and I had been talking over the idea of doing something together, a graphic novel, a series, or some such, and then basically the concept of Excalibur evolved, and we decided on a team, which would be Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Captain Britain, his girlfriend Megan, Phoenix, and someone knew whom we'd invent, and he's referring there to Widget, the metal spherical head. Who's actually kind of Kitty Pride, but we'll get to that in like a year and a half. Long story. Claremont then goes on to talk about how originally Colossus was going to be an Excalibur because they needed a strong man, but then it turned out the X-Men also needed a strong man. Excalibur had Captain Britain as the Excalibur concept evolved, so that didn't happen. Although Colossus will, much, much, much later, end up joining the team. This is the first Excalibur series, but it's not the only one. Odds are very good that if you're familiar with the title, you're familiar with it from this series. But there are a few others you might be thinking of. So quick point of disambiguation. This is Excalibur 1. Volume 1 ran from 1988 to 1998. Volume 2 was a four-issue miniseries, also called Excalibur Sword of Power, came out in 2001. Volume 3 ran in 2004. It was written again by Chris Claremont. It was primarily about Xavier and Magneto trying to rebuild Genosha. And there was new Excalibur, which ran from 2005 to 2007, again Claremont. And much more keeping in tone with the original series. And that was followed up on by X-Men Die by the Sword, a miniseries that sort of basically closed off the Excalibur mythos. We've seen Captain Britain go around with MI-13, for instance, since then, but it hasn't really been Excalibur since that point. So what are we looking at today? This is a special. This isn't actually the start of the series, is it? Yeah, this is called Excalibur Special Edition. The title of the story is The Sword is Drawn, but I think it's just known officially as Special Edition, much less evocative, really. 
Now, originally, there was also going to be a miniseries that would lead up to this, which was going to be about what happened to Rachel Summers between when she disappeared in Uncanny X-Men number 209 and this. It was going to be a Phoenix miniseries by Chris Claremont and Rick Leonardi. It was also going to lead into the long-shot ongoing series that never happened, so what might have been. As it was, The Sword is Drawn is the first taste we get of Excalibur and the first time we see Phoenix ever since she disappeared. And this is coming out a while before the ongoing series actually technically starts. So one of the things you'll notice if you're listening along, if you're picking up here, is there's going to be a pretty significant break between our coverage of this and when the actual series picks up and jumps in and starts to interact with the rest of X continuity. As I mentioned before, this is coming right on the shoulders of Fall of the Mutants. And normally, this is where we would stop and we'd do a run through of the lineup of characters you're going to see. But one of the things I really like about The Sword is Drawn, about Excalibur Special Edition, is how well those introductions are paced within the story. I mean, it was being written for readers who weren't familiar with the overwhelming majority of the characters in the book. And so I think we can probably let Claremont sort of dictate those introductions as we go along. That seems entirely reasonable. And side note, guys, this is how you do the introduction to a team. This is how you do a getting the band together issue. It is so beautifully paced and so engaging, and the writing and the art just come together exactly as they should. And that quality really continues once the series itself starts. So Excalibur, one of the strongest starts I have ever seen to a book. We open up on Muir Island as Kitty Pride tosses and turns. Kitty Pride with her amazing floofy Alan Davis hair, which I love. Yeah, man, this is my definitive Kitty Pride. Actually, the Alan Davis versions of every character who appear in this special are my definitive versions of those characters. You know, I was just thinking that earlier today as well. Like when I think of Nightcrawler, when I think of Shadowcat or Captain Britain or Megan or Rachel Summers, I see Alan Davis's versions. Oh, unquestionably. So Kitty's tossing and turning understandably because one of the last things that she found out about, the good news is that she's learned to control her powers a little bit better and she's no longer about to die and phase through the world, but she also just found out that all of her friends died in Dallas, Texas, saving the world. Hey, hey, that's not true. One of them is still around and that is Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler was, like Kitty, severely injured in the mutant massacre. And he is likewise recovering on Muir Island. Right. Kitty is rudely awakened by a bunch of people who just sort of uh, nightmare logic style grab her and start putting makeup on her and making her sign X-Men comic books, which is super meta and weird, and get her into costume and just sort of toss her through the door into a very strange place. Where she lands is a film set where she's immediately confronted by slightly off versions of the X-Men. They look like the X-Men she knows, but they're dressed and they're acting like movie stars waiting to go on for their shots, and they interact with her like they are, too. They don't have the same personalities they originally did, and Kitty just feels horribly confused and out of place. And I really love the little touches. So, for instance, Longshot and Dazzler look like they're romantically involved, but they're being sort of more sexual about it. Like, Dazzler has her hand inside Longshot's shirt as he looks all smug, and you see Storm dressed up all glamorously, looking a little bit disdainful toward everyone around her. So these are the characters we know. Their identities are vaguely the same as they were, but they're little touches where they're just less nice, less genuine, less true, more like actors. And everything on this set is labeled Mojo's New World Picks, which if you've been listening, you will recognize Mojo is a periodic X-Men antagonist. He was introduced in the Longshot Limited series, and he's been popping up mostly in actually Alan Davis drawn specials, which brings me to my favorite creepy bit of the intro, which is Psylocke. Oh, yeah. So Psylocke, back in the Captain Britain comics, lost her eyes when she was herself Captain Britain and fought a dude named Slaymaster. She got new ones later from Spiral and Mojo that were basically live camera feeds into the Mojoverse. Now, the X-Men do not know about this. In fact, the only person other than Spiral and Psylocke who knew about this was Doug Ramsey, who is now dead. And Kitty definitely doesn't know about it, which is why it's especially creepy when as she comes up to Psylocke and tries to ask what's going on. And Psylocke, who is sitting there sort of eyeless and in a rictus grin, responds, 
We're magic people, Kitty. Where else would we belong but a magic town? As a tech uses a machine to pop in her mechanical eyes. It is so gloriously creepy. Like, Chris Claremont and Alan Davis have the nightmare thing down pat. I also really like the touch that the set of the X-Mansion is being constructed as the actors get ready for their next scene. Like, there are random people in jumpsuits, like, rolling down the grass and painting the uh, background itself. And it's all wonderfully surreal. And before Kitty is ready, Director X, Professor Xavier in a director's chair, yells action and the X-Men suddenly seem like themselves and jump into action. But there's someone else here, too, who is equally non, well, not exactly equally nonplussed, but who's also not playing their assigned part. And that is a character we have not seen in a very, very long time. Yeah, Rachel Summers appears. And interestingly enough, she's wearing her hound outfit. Now, uh, as a reminder... She's wearing a red version of her hound outfit, and that's an important distinction. Yes. As a reminder, Rachel comes from the Days of Future Past future... Earth 811. ...where she was used by the anti-mutant rulers of the place to track down mutants to imprison. She is specifically the daughter of that universe's Scott Summers and a Jean Grey who, instead of being replaced by, merged with the Phoenix Force. So the hound outfit, I mean, we've seen that appear before when Rachel is super mad up, and when she's sort of going back to that dark time in her life, she telekinetically manifests it. That was a black version. This one is red, so it's a red jumpsuit with lots of spikes all over it. And Phoenix tries to help Kitty Pride up, and is immediately confronted by a very disapproving Director X. He's not actually called Director X, but it just sounds so right when you say it that it way. It really does. It fits so well. Like, you wrote it in the notes, and I've just been thinking of him as that ever since. <laughs> and Xavier says... You had your chance at stardom, baby Phoenix, and blew it. When your teammates needed you most, you ran out on them. And the X-Men actors appear to restrain her, and Kitty is able to phase her away, at which point we meet the other uh, running antagonists of early Excalibur, the Warwolves. And it's so creepy because the X-Men are all cornering Kitty against a wall, and their mouths start to open grotesquely as these sort of silver, metallic, wolf-like creatures pull out, just sloughing off the skin like some kind of a costume, which for the Warwolves is basically what skin is. They hollow out people, they sort of dissolve their guts and their skeleton and their muscle, and just wear their skin. And it's kind of terrifying, actually. It is. If you're familiar with only more recent books, you would have seen these guys pop up specifically in X-Men 92. And also, I believe, in the Nightcrawler limited series that Chris Claremont did recently. Oh, yes, yes. They are totally all over that. I had forgotten. So, you know, that's not good. We've gone from a nightmare to an even shittier nightmare. So the moral of the story is... Don't ever sleep, at least not after your friends all die in Dallas, saving the Marvel Universe. Fortunately for Kitty, it is all a dream. She wakes back up on Muir Isle, just in time to see a phoenix raptor appear in the sunrise. I'm sure that doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, sometimes the sun just looks like a big flaming bird right after you have a dream about a lady who is a big flaming bird. It's cool. It's nothing. Clearly. And that brings us to the introduction of the first non-X character who is, at the moment, swimming with some dolphins. Yeah, this is Megan. Megan Pusenu. I, I don't know how you're supposed to say her last name. She only really got it recently in Captain Britain and MI13, but it's something like that. It's spelled P-U-C-E-A-N-U. But anyway. And now you know. We're just going to call her Megan. That's what she'll go by for decades anyway. So, yeah, Megan we have seen before as American audiences. British audiences had seen her quite a bit in the Captain Britain series. Oh, she showed up in some of the um, the annuals, right? Exactly. She and Captain Britain were in some of the Alan Davis-drawn annuals from the last few years in X-Men and New Mutants. And Megan is a Captain Britain character. She made her first appearance in 1983, so that would have been five years before this, in Mighty World of Marvel number seven. She was created by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. And I love Megan's basic origin. So Megan is a metamorph. 
And she was born in winter and immediately sprouted a full coat of fur because it was cold. And everyone was freaked out and kept on, you know, theorizing about what other characteristics she might manifest. And as she heard them, she just sort of subconsciously, she's, she's a metamorph and an empath, which means she basically shifts shape to reflect what other people expect her to be or to blend in with her environment or to respond to other people's emotions when she's not consciously controlling her powers. And so as a baby, she just got more and more and more and more monstrous because people would see her and they'd be like, oh my God, and she might also, and then she'd immediately do that. And that also meant that her family hid her away from the world. And so she was essentially raised by television. She never learned to read, for instance. It's a plot point that she's illiterate. So what we have here is this character who is fascinating and immensely powerful and incredibly kind and full of wonder. Well, and immensely smart, too, but has no frame of reference outside of pop culture. And I love this narration that Claremont brings up the first time we see Megan. She'd been swimming alone when the pod popped up and asked her to play. The dolphin's natural exuberance was too infectious to be denied. She knew next to nothing of the sea, so they delighted in teaching her its wonders and mysteries. She was having so much fun, she lost all track of time. And yet, this is Megan. Megan is a creature of joy and wonder, who basically just falls into the emotional state of whoever she happens to be around at the time, and whose appearance shifts to mirror that. So the first time we see Megan, her features are very sort of aquatic and smooth and almost cartoony before she realizes where she's supposed to be and turns more human. Yeah. Now, these days, we mentioned sort of Megan's odd kind of bat-eared furry form. These days, she primarily appears as a very, very conventionally attractive blonde woman. And she was rescued by and fell in love with Captain Britain. And he was a little freaked out by her appearance because he's kind of a shallow douchebag in a lot of ways. He kind of is. He super is. I'm trying to remember who it was in Skype who described him as a rugby thug. <laughs> That's kind of accurate, yes. Um, but yeah, as being a fairly specific British stereotype. And a telepath told her sometime in this that her soul was incandescently beautiful. And because, again, Megan shifts shape to reflect the expectations and perceptions of the people around her, she was like, oh, suddenly I'm gorgeous. And Captain Britain was like, hey. So after she's done frolicking with the dolphins, she heads home to do what she primarily does in her downtime, which is watch TV. Only today it's not as fun as it could be. Right. This is one of the many news reports coming out of Dallas, coming out of the Fall of the Mutants chapters of Uncanny X-Men, where the X-Men have just died saving the world, and where more specifically, Psylocke, Captain Britain's sister, has died. Which brings us finally to Captain Britain himself, who is slouched in a back room in half of his Captain Britain uniform, drinking and crying. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. See, that's the thing with Captain Britain is he's really messed up. He's got some major psychological issues. He's been an alcoholic and he doesn't really treat his partner very well. Nonetheless, he is a compelling and sympathetic character. And I think a lot of that is the fact that he's been written by a lot of really good authors, most notably Chris Claremont and for quite a while, Alan Moore. And then later, Alan Davis. And one of the things that I actually really like about Excalibur, so Captain Britain, Brian Braddock is kind of a shitty person in a lot of ways. And the book keeps him accountable. He's not one of those heroes whose behavior and whose abusive behavior is romanticized. Like, it's very clearly portrayed as not okay. And he also really tries to get better. And sometimes it's a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. But overall, his intentions do bear out. And I think that's one of the reasons I like Captain Britain so much. You know, you can have a hero who's just the perfect paragon of virtue. And that's not, to me, as interesting as one who really has to work through some negative personality traits, which Brian does. And as you mentioned, he is carrying a lot of baggage, specifically in this case with regards to death and the idea of both his own culpability in his sister's death and some bad memories it's bringing up. Okay, so real brief recap of Captain Britain's origin. <laughs> yeah, God, the Wikipedia entry on this dude. Oh, it's amazing. Captain Britain is, we've done at least one cold open on him, but oh my God. 
I think it's going to take us two episodes to cover the Captain Britain backstory when we do. Yeah. But the short version is he was a scientist whose parents died, sort of a shy aristocrat. And when a supervillain attacked the lab he was working in, he escaped on a motorcycle, proceeded to crash it, and was then met, as one often is after a motorcycle crash, by Merlin and Roma, the guardians of the Omniverse. As you may recall, Roma in particular has a penchant for bringing heroes back to life. She just did that with the X-Men. So Merlin and Roma say, hey, sweet bike. Really a shame about the crash there. We would like to offer you your choice of the Sword of Might or the Amulet of Right. But choose fast because you're bleeding out. And so young Brian Braddock figures he's no warrior. He chooses the Amulet of Right, which was apparently the correct choice because that grants him the power of Captain Britain. He is now the guardian of England and a superhero. And so he proceeds to Captain Britain around for a long time. Shortly after first appearing, he crossed over with the mainstream Marvel Universe when he was Spider-Man's roommate. They fought Arcade. It was kind of awesome. Sure, why not? Yeah. Most notably, as far as the story we're talking about, though, he took a break from being Captain Britain for a while after a thing called the Jasper's Warp. Long story, we'll talk about it later. And Betsy Braddock, the woman we know as Psylocke, herself became Captain Britain. That thing where she lost her eyes that we mentioned before? Yeah, that. Now, during his tenure as Captain Britain... Brian Braddock has died a few times, and it has really messed him up. I mean, the New Mutants issues where they die in Secret Wars 2, I think, are a good example of if you died and came back and remembered that you died, what it would be like. And for Brian, you know, that's certainly left some marks, and it's suggested that much of his alcoholism comes from dealing with that fact. We've also talked about, you know, superheroism as an onus, as something that's sort of forced upon you under dire circumstances. That's definitely true of Captain Britain, and I think it's more obviously true of Captain Britain because his role isn't one that he really invented or picked. He is doing a job. Captain Britain is a job that needs to be filled in every universe. Yeah, that's another thing, is that the concept of the multiverse, as we know it in Marvel, came from Captain Britain comics, largely through showing us that every universe has its own Captain Britain. They're called the Captain Britain Corps, and they'll be a big deal later. And they've already been a big deal. They're a big deal throughout time and space, basically. So yeah, those are our two British characters, the two imports from Marvel UK. And Megan, like you were saying, Jay, rushes in to find Brian, figuring, hey, he just found out his sister died. He's probably not having a great time. Brian is not, in fact, having a great time. Brian is drunk, and Brian is an angry drunk. He goes off at Megan, who herself flies away, and decides that she's going to go find Kitty and Kurt, see if they're okay. Wait, 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 wait. But before this, the most important part is that Megan flees into their bedroom, which is an amazing bedroom. Oh, yeah, you're right. God, their bedroom is spectacular. They've got this enormous round pink bed. And they've got a fucking random gladiator helmet. You know, I'm just saying, everyone's got their own bedroom games. We're not going to judge. Rory and Amy did the same thing with a gladiator helmet back in Doctor Who in a Christmas special, as I recall. They totally did. She is just crying. She's incredibly upset because Brian's the most important person to the world for her. And she actually turns briefly into that sort of monstrous bat form before realizing, wait, he was just upset. He doesn't really hate me and turning into her glamorous, beautiful self again. This is what Megan does. And man, what a cool comic book narrative shortcut for showing a character's emotional state, having a character whose power it is to show her emotional state. Yeah, Megan's lack of self-image and the extent to which she's defined and validated in very, very literal and manifested versions by the approval of the people around her, including Brian Braddock, who is not a good person to rely on for validation of any kind, is really fascinating. And that's something that's going to become a thematic driver of the series. Absolutely, yeah. 
this is a very psychological series. It's a very silly series also, but it really gets into the psyches of all the characters involved. You know, it always sort of makes me sad that the form that Megan goes to as her sort of self-realization happy form is basically the tall, attractive blonde, because I think her gnarly, furry, bat ear form is so awesome. She's a really rad looking monster lady. I fully approve. Right. She's great. I want her to accept her weirdness as it is and be like, fuck you. I've got a thick coat of fur and weird fish bat wing ears. Yeah, that's right. You can deal with it. <laughs> Fuck you, Brian plan. Braddock. Uh-huh. You want some of this? Yeah, you do. Sorry. Okay, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very strange form of feminism we're describing right here. It's the bat-eared form. I do feel like Megan intersecting with the rhetoric of radical self-acceptance would make for a really fascinating story. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And that's actually something a lot of stories have touched on. I mean, not explicitly, but certainly implicitly. And so, um, yeah, she figures, well, I don't really know what to do, so I should get some advice. Who do I know that seems to know what they're doing? Oh, hey, Kitty Pride seems to know what she's doing. She's on your island. I'm going to go fly over there. And she leaves a note, and it's the cutest note ever. Because Megan can't really read and write. Like, she can do her own name, but that's about it. And so she draws sort of a diagram of where she's gone, which is a dotted line from the lighthouse to a house with a, a little cat in it for Kitty. Yeah, it, it's kind of adorable. So speaking of Muir Island, now we've already seen Kitty there waking up from a super weird nightmare. And now we see Nightcrawler and the first Excuse panel. me, excuse me. I think we should refer to him by his proper appellation when drawn by Alan Davis, which is Sexiest Nightcrawler. I think you're absolutely right. So now we see Sexiest Nightcrawler in possibly, I'm not going to say this for sure, but possibly the greatest single Kurt Wagner panel of all time. Yeah. Playing pirates in the danger room is basically the natural habitat of Kurt Wagner. It is where he is at his most Kurt Wagnery, And he has, in fact, given these danger room robots little pirate mustaches. I love that touch. And, and sort of musketeer looking hats. And he's got a foil in each hand and one in his tail. And it's Kurt Wagner at his swashbuckly best. And in fact, I mean, the dialogue is like right there with it. Have at the foul recreants, numberless you may be. You're still no match for one with the heart and soul of a true musketeer. Ah, noble D'Artagnan, valiant Cyrano, Scaramouche, and Captain Blood, if you could but see me now! Well, they'd probably be kind of concerned, because Nightcrawler is still recovering, and so the pirate robots almost immediately get the best of him and would kill him if Kitty, upset, hadn't phased through the controls and blown them out. What gives, Kurt? You feel left out because the rest of the X-Men got killed and we didn't? You figure on this being the perfect way to catch up to him? You have no right to say such things. You haven't the right to give me a cause. And Kurt, being a mature blue adult, sorry, sexiest Kurt, being a mature blue adult, basically says, yeah, okay, you're right. And they start talking about how they're doing, and it turns out... That Kurt has just had a really unsettling dream, one in which he was trapped on a movie set with odd facsimiles of the X-Men, until an old friend he hadn't seen for a very, very long time burst in, got in a confrontation with the director, and was finally able to escape, pursued by silvery wolf creatures. This may sound familiar to you, and it certainly does to Kitty. Yeah. So they start thinking, okay, well, maybe Rachel's okay. And I can imagine that a lot of their motivation for being desperate to do something about this is we just lost almost all of our friends, basically our family. If there's somebody who's still alive that we didn't think was, let's do everything we can to help her. They are not the only people looking for Rachel Summers. In fact, our next arrival and our next members of the cast, although not members of the team, are my very, very, very favorite supporting Excalibur characters. Technet. Guys, Technet. Okay. These are characters you also would have seen if you were familiar with Marvel UK. I was not, so this was my first exposure to them, and I love them so much! While you wouldn't have, by this point, 
If you saw a lot of the animated series first, you might also have caught them briefly in the background of one of the episodes set in Scotland. They are randomly in a bar, which is kind of amazing because they are a visually distinctive crew. Let's talk about some TechNet. Yeah, so the first two we see are Gatecrasher and Yap. And Gatecrasher is my favorite member of TechNet, and I suspect most people's favorite member of TechNet. She is my favorite member of TechNet and one of my very favorite comic book characters of anything. So Gatecrasher, she's this large, bluish, purplish woman. It's really hard to describe her, but she is just incredibly physically imposing. She's like eight feet tall and about half as wide across, incredibly muscular, and leads TechNet, which is this gang of interdimensional bounty hunters. And she's sort of alien fantasy looking, and Alan Davis alien fantasy, which is very similar to Dave Cockrum alien fantasy. So she's got kind of, you know, this jewel-encrusted outfit. She's gaudily appointed. Yeah. Also, I love the way Gatecrasher talks, because you would expect a character like this to be some kind of a brainless brawler, but she always talks very precisely and very properly. Salutations, small and youthful sentience. And with Gatecrasher is a creature named Yap. Yap is a weird little sort of reddish lizard critter who sits on her shoulder and calls her mother. The implication, at least to me, is that she's not actually his mother, like he just insists on calling her that. Snee, two paraforms present, mother. None others close enough to interfere. I grow weary of endlessly repeating myself, Lizard. Don't call me mother. Yes, mother. <sighs> if you weren't so infernally useful. And, like, this is the thing. I mean, they're all just, like, goofy, interdimensional sitcom characters in Excalibur. It's hilarious and wonderful, even when it's super dramatic or violent or whatever. And they're so weird. And they just storm straight into the house. They knock at the door and they just sort of pile in. And they're there to hunt down Phoenix and to deliver a message to Earth. Luckily, she happens to have found two of very few people who would know who she's talking about. Yeah, and she also finds the person who suddenly shows up, Megan, who has met her before and is not a fan of Gatecrasher. That's because Gatecrasher's usual job, in fact, Technet's usual job, is working for someone named Omniversal Magistrix Opal Luna Saturnine. Who is this lady, aside from exceptionally blonde? She runs a lot of things. She's in she charge runs the universe. of everything, yeah, basically. You know, Roma is the Omniversal Guardian, and Saturnine's the Omniversal Magistrix, which is, you know, less altruistic and more queen-ish, I guess. I imagine there's more paperwork involved. Yes. And of course, there are alternate Opal Luna Saturnines. My favorite is Satire 9, who's super creepy. I'm glad she's your favorite, because she's going to be around a lot. Yes, she is. Gatecrasher does her I have this holographic message to deliver thing, at which point we see Saturnine, who essentially says, Phoenix is on the loose. We know that the Phoenix Force is dangerous. Earth, please assist us in tracking her down. Thanks. Now, I mentioned that Saturnine is very blunt. She's also gorgeous. And so we get a set of reactions from the three heroes who are assembled from Kurt. Unglaublich! From Megan. The witch. I never understood what Brian saw in her. And from Kitty. Boy, I can. Darn it. Again with the subtext. Thanks, Claremont. So you mentioned when you'd read this for the first time, you'd sort of interpreted it as Kitty being like, man, I wish I looked like that. And in retrospect, yeah, no. Especially considering what's going to happen later. To be fair, I read this when I was like 10. You know, I didn't know any better. I mean, it gets less subtle. That it does. So it does. much less subtle. And so Nightcrawler and Shadowcat and Megan all basically say, no, no, we're not going to help you. At which point Gatecrasher calls in the rest of TechNet, who we should talk about a little bit. And man, if you thought Gatecrasher and Yap were weird. I always enjoy when groups of aliens look truly alien, and these guys really do. I mean, some of them are humanoid, but none of them could even remotely be mistaken for human. 
we're not going to go down the full list. We'll just throw this into the visual companion. You can see for yourself. But we have Body Bag, China Doll, Pharaoh, Thug, Waxworth, Joy Boy, Scatterbrain. And there will actually be other members of TechNet later on. There will also be a future version of TechNet called the Special Executive, who is sort of rivals with present day TechNet, which is a concept that I love. Fighting a time traveling version of your future self, or at least your future organization. Not even fighting them, just being professional rivals with them. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God, I love TechNet. TechNet is so amazing. You know, there's a lot that I love about Excalibur. And one of the things that I love most about it is that it is a very common staging ground for TechNet. Basically, if something is high, weird, and somewhat British, it's probably going to show up in Excalibur. Unfortunately, despite being superheroes, Kitty and Kurt are both in very, very, very rough shape. They are easily subdued by TechNet. Megan is taken down not much later. Kurt manages to teleport away, but Kitty and Megan are captured and they are absorbed by Body Bag, which is basically a sentient human storage unit. Yeah, he's sort of this like lizard looking thing that swallows people with slimy tentacly stuff. We will once again encourage you to go check out the visual companion for actual pictures because these guys kind of defy description. I will say, so I read uh, Excalibur Special Edition like over and over when I was a kid. This was one of my favorites along with, you know, Fallen Angels and some other stuff. And I always really wondered like how weird and not okay that would feel to get swallowed by a body bag. It sort of made me shiver to even read that scene. So while they're dealing with Excalibur, let's check in on their quarry, Phoenix herself. Who is currently falling out of the sky, as like one does. Like you do, yes. yeah. Into what is possibly one of the most definitive Excalibur panels of all time. She's still, you know, in her red houndish outfit. She's still got chains all over her from that weird dream sequence with the X-Men. And she lands in a giant cake in the middle of something. There's the Mad Hatter. There are a couple of, like, Hollywood movie monsters. There's a rat with a chainsaw. And they're all against a background of what appears to be some kind of galaxy scape. Because sure, why not? Yeah, and so Rachel's like, well, crap, I'm, you know, still in Mojo's movie studio, apparently. But that really begs the question, what the hell kind of movie is this? Excalibur the movie, because honestly, not all of these characters are going to come back. Not all of them are visual motifs. But Excalibur is so far and so fiercely, joyously in the deep weird and the eclectic deep weird that I feel like we wouldn't have batted an eye at this lineup 10 issues from now. That's actually kind of true. But coming into this from having just read like X-Men and New Mutants and X-Factor, it's a little different. Well, and it's Alan Davis drawing it. And again, I cannot emphasize enough the difference it makes. We talk a lot about artists with very, very distinctive styles, and usually we're talking very stylized. But Alan Davis, it's it's compositional as well. And there is no one else who I think could pull off the level of weird and creepy and still just very buoyant. Of Excalibur. You know, buoyant is a good word. Yeah, totally. And so Rachel's a little freaked out and tries to escape. And at this point, all of the various movie monsters and Mad Hatters and weird clowns and stuff decide, no, they can't let her leave. She must be one of those weird mutants and they're going to restrain her and they all grab onto her chains. Unfortunately for them, fortunately, briefly fortunately anyway for Rachel, she is being followed specifically by the pack of werewolves, and there's nothing that breaks up a good party like a bunch of goddamn werewolves. So like, guys, you're hosting a party, right? And it's getting on to be pretty late. Like, you know, a party going to two is whatever, but now it's like 2.43, and your word guests are just going to stick around. There are a couple in a corner, and they just ordered some pizza from a late night place, and you're like, guys, I got to get to sleep. You could, you know, start turning on all the lights or start cleaning up, or you could just call in the werewolves and have them attack. You know, really a pretty standard way to end out a party, at least here in Portland. I don't know about elsewhere. The werewolves break up the party, and in the chaos, Phoenix is able to bust through onto the street of London, normal modern London, with a sign for a masquerade ball wrecked on the building outside. Okay, you know what? I don't know that I buy this, because, okay, yes, those could have all been costumes, and the space stuff could have been a set, and we have, in fact, seen bats hanging from strings from the ceiling. 
but rat with a chainsaw rat with a chainsaw it doesn't even look like a person in a rat costume it's just a giant rat with a chainsaw see i am 100 willing to accept this because as a relatively ignorant american my idea of wild british parties are based on the combination of the invisibles and the fact that they're the country that produced david bowie so a grant morrison comic and the thin white duke have influenced your opinion of an entire nation no just of their fancy dress parties oh well that's actually kind of reasonable and you know, Rat with a Chainsaw kind of could have appeared on any Bowie album or in any Grant Morrison comic, so I'm gonna go with it. I'm okay with this. So yeah, she's in London, which is not even remotely where she expected to be, because she figured she was still in the Mojoverse. Guess what else is in London? Oh, so many things. Werewolves! Werewolves just bust out behind her! Werewolves of London. And I'm pretty sure that's the title of at least one issue of Excalibur. I think it's actually the title of the first story in the ongoing, or one of the first. Well, there you go. But look, London has had a rough run of it. They have been hosting Marvel UK. There's been the Jasper's Warp, which no one actually remembers, well, I think. Well, it was in a different universe, technically. Yeah, but there's been a lot of stuff going on. I don't know if this is why they are so low-key sanguine about what's up, but the police just sort of look at the werewolves and shake their heads and go on with their business. It's oh, yeah, kind of great. I love this little bit. This random dude on the street's like, Officer, do something! To which the officer replies, I'm open to suggestions, sir. And that's the thing, like, bizarrely affable is basically the general tone of Excalibur. I should say, too, now that we are specifically covering a comic that is specifically set in and has a cast largely from another country, I want to reiterate our general policy of not trying to do accents that aren't our own. You're going to have to take it as a read that these characters are presumably all talking in something other than Midwest American Standard English. Yeah, so there's this big chase through the streets of London as the passersby are like, huh, well, that's an odd thing to see. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, the werewolves chase Rachel Summers into the subway. She actually manages to throw one of them. She can't use her telekinesis on them because of the nature of them. But she manages to throw one onto some electrified tracks where it dies. Kind of gruesomely, actually. Yeah, and its cohorts mourn it, which is how TechNet is able to key in on their location a little bit later. From the howling werewolves. The werewolves do also talk, by the way. They talk kind of like Yoda, like they'll do sentences half-reversed. It's very strange. Speaking of sad sacks, the next time we see Captain Britain, he is waking up in the ocean. Having been thrown there by a shadowy figure that we pretty easily recognize as Sexiest Nightcrawler in a turtleneck. Sexiest Nightcrawler wears a sexy turtleneck really, really well. I suppose it's kind of tautological to say so, but still. Yeah, I don't really think of the like turtleneck fisherman's hat combination as sexy, but my God, he's working it. Well, when you're Sexiest Nightcrawler, I mean. He really is. Though. This is actually the sequence that caused us to dub this Nightcrawler Sexiest Nightcrawler because it's the sexiest intervention. Yup. And Brian, previously unconscious, you know, wakes up in a panic, furious that someone's apparently trying to kill him, and flies back into his lighthouse, intending to beat the crap out of whoever it was, to find Kurt Wagner making tea. Rage tea. Rage tea. And I kind of just want to go through this, because the dialogue is so good in this scene. Excalibur, like I said, is known for being silly, but it's also very high drama, very high soap opera, in a way that totally works for me. What is wrong with you, man? Friends are in danger. Among them, the girl you supposedly love... Doesn't that matter? Don't you care? Of course I do. It's just, what's the point? Save them now to watch them sacrifice themselves later. We're supposed to be heroes, but we never really make things better. We have no lasting effect on people or the world. The devil, you say! When I say I'm a hero, I mean it in jest. I haven't the right to truly call myself one, and you have even less. All I am is a man, trying to live life as best he knows how, and be true to what he was taught. Those beliefs got my sister killed. Yeah, and my dearest friends with her. My family. Mein Gott. Sometimes all I yearn for more than anything is to have been given the chance, the privilege, of standing with the X-Men and sharing their fate. It isn't fair. They're dead. It's far worse that I remain alive to grieve for them, because it's much more pain than I can endure. 
But I am alive, Braddock, and I must remain true to myself as to their memory. If that is more than you can handle, Captain Britain, I am sorry to have troubled you. You don't understand. You don't know what it's like to actually die. No, perhaps not. But do you, Herr Braddock, have even the slightest idea what it's like to truly live? You blueford goblin, you've no right to judge me. But by that point, Nightcrawler's gone, and Brian's left to pound his fists like six inches deep into the ground while screaming. And the narration really sells why here. We mentioned earlier that Brian has died a couple of times and been resurrected, and that that takes a toll on a person, and it becomes very clear that's what a lot of this is. Not just fear of dying himself, but it's a difficulty processing the concept of death. The fact that his sister, his twin sister, has just died and is probably not coming back. But none of that really matters, because guess what time it is, Miles? Guess what time it is? What time is it, Jay? It's technet time. Again. It totally is. But before Technet time, I want to talk about what happens right before, which is that Rachel Summers, who has escaped the Warwolves, has got herself this, like, sweet, long-fringed leather jacket that she's going to wear for, like, the rest of Excalibur, almost, as sort of a disguise to look a little bit more normal. So, a little over a year ago, we did this plainclothes cosplay contest and stealth cosplay contest where, among other things, we challenged people to recreate a non-superhero costume outfit from a superhero comic, and I so desperately hoped that someone would do one of Rachel Summers' outfits from Excalibur because they are all amazing. We've talked about fashion and how it relates to X-Men, you know, the extent to which creators do and don't necessarily pay attention to it and how that can be really era-specific. I think we actually talked about that last episode, in fact, in response to a question. And Ellen Davis has always sort of struck me as, at least Excalibur-era Ellen Davis, someone who was significantly more conscious of what was going on, you know, contemporarily and really kind of played with it. Like, I don't know to what extent this is what anyone else was wearing in that era, but his characters all dress really distinctively and very much in their own styles. Okay, so here's something that always confused me. So Rachel Summers, right? She grew up on the mean, essentially, internment camp streets of Earth 811. She mostly wore green jumpsuits for the first many, many years of her life, but she's like super stylish in Excalibur. What's going on there? Did she learn about that in the Mojoverse, maybe? I assume so, actually, yeah, or telepathically, or that having grown up in a relatively nondescript and drab-defined universe, she came into this one and was like, okay, sequins and goddamn shoulder pads. I'm on. And a rat tail. If we haven't mentioned, Rachel Summers has like a flat top and a rat tail, and somehow it looks incredible. I didn't know that that was possible, but Alan Davis draws the sweetest flat top and rat tail you have ever seen, I mean, which is again, not a high bar, but still. You nailed why it looks incredible, because hair drawn by Alan Davis is fundamentally more awesome than hair not drawn by Alan Davis. It doesn't matter the style. It doesn't matter the texture. He'll make it fucking spectacular. Alan Davis draws the best hair in the multiverse. I want him as my personal stylist. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. Okay, so the point is Rachel Summers is very stylish when Technet appears and finds her. Technet, it goes without saying, is also very stylish. Well, of course, they're like interdimensional bounty hunter stylish and also super weird looking. This is the big brawl of the issue. Technet is there. Phoenix is there. Nightcrawler shows up. The Warwolves also show up. Finally, and at long last, Captain Britain shows up and immediately gets thrown through three buildings. But still, like, when Captain Britain does show up, we've really only seen him in this issue as an angry drunk, refusing to go help anybody. And here he is in his full Captain Britain regalia, just, like, hovering in the sky, being being super dramatic. And it's actually kind of majestic and awesome. And then, yeah, the fact that he just gets thrown through a wall immediately is very much the sense of humor of Excalibur. It is. I do appreciate how immediately and directly Claremont and Davis key in on the fact that pratfalls are way funnier when it's the Captain Britain type figure taking them. But I want to take us back to the important stuff, which is to say that here we finally get a clearer view of more of the members of TechNet and what they can do. 
Right. So, okay, my all-time favorite member of TechNet is named Joy Boy, and Joy Boy is kind of a giant baby with a spherical body and a spherical head of the same size floating around in like a half egg who just sort of talks in weird noises. And Joy Boy's deal is that it can take people's fondest desires and make them a reality. And so as it starts chasing down Kitty Pride, whose fondest desire is to be able to be solid without having to concentrate really hard, right now she's faced by default, there's this great three-panel sequence of Kitty running away and then becoming just like sort of larger and rounder and getting this beatific grin on her face as she and, becomes and, almost And spherical. heavier and denser, like she's to the point where she can't hold herself up toward the end. And Joy Boy is just yelling in each panel, Blix! Gerbil! Vooty! Which I'd like to point out, I am saying from memory because for some goddamn reason that phrase has stuck in my head for like the last almost 25 years. Me too, and I should qualify if you're just hearing it that the word worth pronouncing gerbil is spelled J-R-B-L. We just can't think of how else it would be pronounced. It's not actually G-E-R-B-I-L. Nonetheless, Which we... would be even weirder if he just randomly yelled that in the middle. <laughs> and so like then there's this sort of jellyfish thing called Waxworks that turns Megan into like a skin bag of shapeless goo and the China doll who's this sort of weird snake lady, turns one of the warwolves into a tiny well, trinket. she shrinks things down, and the fight ends when someone tricks her into using her powers on Gatecrasher. There are those guys, there's Pharaoh, who is mostly a fighter, but who manages to get killed, and it turns out is past his warranty, so Gatecrasher's a little bit disgruntled about that. There's Scatterbrain, whose powers are basically hardcore disorientation and kind of low-key hallucination, from what I can tell. Yeah, uh, Body Bag we talked about already. Uh, Body Bag's prisoners, by the way, Megan and Kitty, are freed early in this when uh, Nightcrawler tricks a warwolf into slicing the bags open. Yap, I think, is a teleporter. Yeah, and Ring Toss is a weird circle head dude who shoots rings of energy. Well, his face is just sort of a weird ring of energy that he can shoot out and will wrap around people and restrain them. God, TechNet is amazing. I imagine that TechNet job interviews are just the best. Oh, geez. I'd also imagine that, like, only half the applicants survive. That seems really likely. And yeah, so it's this big knockdown, dragout, bizarre, bizarre fight. And the X characters, the heroes, are at a significant disadvantage because TechNet, for all their weirdness, are a team. They work together, they are collaborative fighters, and they have our heroes totally outmatched until they too start stepping it up and working together. Like I mentioned earlier, they managed to trick China Doll into shrinking down Gatecrasher. After which Technet teleports away and the Warwolves, heavily beaten by both sides, slink away. And our new semi-team are victorious. We've mentioned before that Alan Davis draws amazing happy people and hugs, and that is exactly what we get, because think about it. Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride they saw Rachel Summers vanish in X-Men 209 after she'd been almost gutted by Wolverine. They figured she must be dead. And with Rogue unable to find her after that, you know, that theory only became stronger. Seeing their friend alive when all of the rest of their friends just got killed, super happy times. So they have tears streaming down their faces as they all embrace, and Captain Britain and Megan kiss, and everything is great and happy and awesome. And Rachel understands, you know, fundamental tenets of superhero comics. You forget, Fuzzy Elf. I'm Phoenix. If I die, it's only to be reborn, hopefully better and brighter than before. And, you know, this is kind of a different Rachel Summers than we've seen before. Speaking of being reborn, it's not just the color of the costume. Part of that, I think, is that when she's drawn by Alan Davis, she just looks a little different. She had this angry waif aesthetic going on back in X-Men. You know, she was very thin, and she always looked quite haunted, and she wore these weird leg warmers all the time. And now, the Rachel Summers we see looks a lot more confident. She also looks a lot older. Yeah, she's a character who gives the impression of having very much come into her own. And we find out part of why shortly after, in sort of the denouement, all of the characters decide to go out and they make a campfire. And they're all trading stories about their times with the X-Men. Kitty's remembering her first time through the danger room when Professor X spent hours, you know, setting up this perfect program. And she just closed her eyes and phased through the whole thing. 
And Kurt talks about the time Wolverine challenged him to just walk down a busy city street without his image inducer, just in his normal blue self. And what I like about this, this is bringing up a feel of nostalgia for the characters, but for us, for the X readers who have read through these stories, it's also really bringing that up as well. And so the fact that we know the X-Men aren't dead, that they were resurrected immediately after dying at the end of Fall of the Mutants, almost doesn't matter, because it's real to these characters, and these characters are so sympathetic and so believable that it becomes real to us. It becomes this bittersweet sense of remembering the good times that will never come again. But Phoenix can't quite join in. The facts in my head, they're so jumbled up. I don't know anymore what's real and what isn't, what actually happened, what's a lie. But that doesn't matter, because the clutter doesn't affect my emotional realities, perhaps in turn because the phoenix by nature responds better to feelings than rationality. I know who I am, who I care for, who I don't. That's what matters. The rest I can take or leave. And you know, I know what she's talking about here. I know that she's talking about her own history as a character. But I gotta say, her speech here is also, I think, a really good primer for how to engage with long-running shared universe superhero comics. Yeah, I think you're right, because, you know, the details are always going to change. You're always going to have certain personality traits portrayed differently. You're always going to have certain plot points that are retconned away. But if you can keep what makes a character a character, if you can do a DC animated universe style, you're gold. And I think that's kind of the core of Rachel Summers. I think that's what G. Willow Wilson captured very well in her recent run on Adjectiveless X-Men, is that Rachel Summers is a creature of passion and emotion, and that's probably part of why she's the most successful host the Phoenix has ever had. Can we talk about that for a second? May I digress and complain about something that has been bothering me for years now? It's a giant-sized episode. We have plenty of time. Why wasn't she a bigger deal in Avengers vs. X-Men? Because the Phoenix is coming to Earth. Everyone freaks the fuck out and is like, how do we stop it? How do we get it? Why does no one think to go and consult the one person alive who has been a successful Phoenix host? Because she had that shit down from the start. She never went dark Phoenix. She was super competent. She did the whole Phoenix integration with self thing pretty much seamlessly. I mean, it does come up in Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy run. But really only in passing and only like validating hope. Why are the Avengers not calling her to consult from the start? Why are the X-Men not? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was the whole thing where her connection to the Phoenix was severed with the whole Shi'ar technology, blah, blah, blah. But she's still got more years of productive Phoenix hosting under her belt than any other living character in the Marvel Universe. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that does showcase something really unfortunate about Rachel Summers, which is the tendency of the character to get sidelined. Rachel Summers in Excalibur, for me, is the definitive version of the character. And I think ever since the main run of Excalibur ended, ever since she was no longer a main character in this book, she's sort of been lost. She's appeared in many comics. You know, she's been at the Jean Grey school for quite a long time, but I don't think we've ever really captured what makes Rachel special more than briefly. Damn shame. It really is, especially because with Excalibur, she is really stepping up as the heart of the team. You know, Captain Britain and Megan start to head off. None of them are quite sure what to do. And she's the one who stops them and says... Are you saying simply because the X-Men are dead, we're supposed to give up? The X-Men thought enough of Professor Xavier's dream to offer up their lives. Is it so much to ask that we fight to preserve it? The sword Excalibur represented hope. It was light in the darkness of fear and ignorance and hate. Do we have the right to snuff it out? And she says she's done running and done with the worlds of illusion. And everyone else rallies to that. They decide they're going to do it. And the final page of this issue, we talk about panels and pages that, that have stuck with us over the years, and ones that just encapsulate whole books, whole runs, whole feelings. And for me, this final page of The Sword is Drawn is Excalibur. It's camaraderie. And it's just this amazing brightness, you know, of color, of design, of emotion. It's, holy shit, I think I get Christmas. 
<laughs> you know, kind of. I mean, Excalibur has always had that sort of feel of camaraderie and acceptance and knowing that you have a solid base of your friends or family or whatever, no matter how much weird stuff the world throws at you. Well, and it's about taking what you've got and creating your own light in the face of isolation and darkness. I think it really is. And I mean, that's the thing, Excalibur, it's a really overall, I mean, bad stuff happens, but it's a really happy comic. You know, we have this last page that is these five characters, three of whom we know and love, and two of whom are just starting to get to know, unless we're British, in which case we know and love them too, with their arms around each other, the Phoenix Raptor in the background, all of them beaming. And a caption to match. And so, with laughter and transcendent joy, the dream is reconsecrated. And Excalibur, that most ancient and noble blade, once more redrawn. And as Chris Claremont loves to end issues, the beginning. So, uh, take a drink. So, yeah, it's just this incredibly charming, uplifting ending. And when we just got done with the fall of the mutants, with doom and gloom, and especially new mutants, but to a degree in X-Factor and X-Men as well, this is a wonderful British breath of fresh air. So, last year... In our giant size special, we thought it might be fun to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit. We interview a lot of people on the show. We talk a lot about comics and our producer, Robbie, had offered to interview us. And Kyle suggested that we continue that tradition next year. It also gives you a chance to hear the voice of someone who is absolutely central and instrumental to the podcast, but very rarely appears on air with us, although you can hear him on KaijuCast. So, ladies and gentlemen, our producer, Kyle Yount. Why, hello, X-Fans. And, uh, and of course, Jay and Miles. Hi, Kyle. Hey. Hey, this has been one hell of a uh, winter special so far, and I just thought it would be kind of cool to to chat with you guys. You know, I sit here on the other side of the audio board every weekend and get to hear you guys wax poetic and admire the X-Men franchise, essentially. And so uh, I know the listeners don't know very much about me, aside from the fact that I love giant monsters, but it's also no strange uh, subject matter to me, the X-Men, because as a kid, I totally read X-Men. Now, I didn't read it very much and very for very long because my parents got into a weird religious anti-comic thing, uh, but that obviously didn't happen to you guys. So I just had a few questions that I wanted to talk about and do sort of a KaijuCast style you know, interview, just do something where we just kind of conversationally talk about the X-Men for a little while, if you're into that. Sweet. Absolutely. You might if we ask questions back at you, because like I know we did an interview very early on that I need to I still need to clean up and actually publish on the site. But uh, one of the things that struck me is that you and Bobby are both great and you're both you but you're very different styles of podcasters, but you have one really key characteristic in common, and that is your favorite X-Man. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that Bobby's favorite was also Nightcrawler. Yeah. Nightcrawler for me, like when I was a kid and reading X-Men. Wolverine was where it was at, right? And keep in mind, this is like 1985, 1986. So everybody freaking loved Wolverine. And I loved Wolverine as well, but it's really Nightcrawler that does it for me. He keeps things fun. Uh, his teleportation bamf noise is just, it's been, <laughs> it's been something that I like every once in a while, I'll just go bamf when I don't <laughs> want to be somewhere. And, uh, nobody ever hears it, of course. But yeah, Nightcrawler's awesome and he's fun. And that's actually, you know, I love Godzilla movies. And while I take them seriously, the the ones I like the most are the ones that are fun. So that's kind of probably why, why Nightcrawler is the number one guy for me. I was very curious because X-Men has been around for so long. Actually, you know, just somewhat recently celebrated their 50 year anniversary, you know, several years ago. But we know that it was originally intended to be a metaphor for civil rights. And in, you know, 
as far as you guys are concerned, after 50 plus years of the X-Men franchise having been built and then built upon, is that still apt? Do you guys still consider civil rights or human rights to be like the core concept of X-Men? I don't think it was ever apt. I think the intention was there, but I think, and I've, I've talked about this. I think I talked about this actually most in the very first episodes of the podcast. I think when you set something up to be an allegory for something that complicated, you run a couple of really specific risks. And one of them is, is, is erasure. So you have, you know, the allegory instead of the actual thing that it's there to represent, which is a problem when it's there in the real world. And you have things that are overly, overly heavy handed. And you have, you have allegories that are largely being written from outside by people who aren't members of the groups who they're trying to allegorically represent, which has been overwhelmingly the case with the X-Men. The metaphor that I think mutants would work best for is one that, as far as I know, has never actually been explored canonically within X-Books, and that is for the evolution of an interaction of radical disability activism and radical disability theory and the movement from the medical to social models of disability, because that does really directly, even if it inadvertently, parallel the evolution of mutants in the Marvel Universe. And and mutant culture and politics in the Marvel Universe. Um, I can totally see that. But, you know, at the same time, um, I know you mentioned that you you haven't seen it as an effective metaphor. No. I think where it really works for me is basically not so much as with mutants as a parallel to uh, minority groups who might be reading the comic, although I'm sure there's that identification as well, absolutely. But for people who aren't that, for people who maybe would uh, prejudge people of a certain ethnic or religious or whatever group, X-Men, I think, is a way to show, hey, everyone can be different in awesome ways. And even if society says they're not okay, maybe they're super awesome. I know when I was a kid, I mean, I suspect a lot of the attitudes I, I developed toward diversity, people of other groups, empathizing and sympathizing with people who I was not like, came directly from X-Men. I mean, I think in my bio on the site, I talk about, you know, that uh, if you buy me a drink, I'll tell you why, how Chris Claremont made me a feminist. And that's really the case. You know, seeing a group where all these different groups of people, male, female, powered, unpowered, blue, whatever, could work together, that was huge. I will say that the allegorical generality is valuable. And I mean, I think it's valuable in the way that you're talking about because the odds of finding a character who who reflects every reader who needs that point of identification is very low. But when you when you have someone who's outside of that and different in another way, it's, it becomes easier for a wider range of folks to put themselves into their shoes. There's a letter actually very, very early on in Claremont's run from a reader talking about Nightcrawler and physical disability and visual physical disability and the extent to which he's sort of the first character who she's found whose relationship to his appearance in society really reflects what she goes through. Totally, yeah. And yeah, Kyle, you were asking about, um, you know, kind of how the metaphor has has evolved over time. And um, I was actually thinking of, of a really recent issue that came out, Extraordinary X-Men number three, um, came out a couple of weeks ago, and there was a cool thing in that where there is a person with kind of a non-human appearance who's being bullied by a bunch of bigoted jerks who think he's a mutant. Um, Jean Grey chases away said jerks, and the guy says, no, I'm not a mutant, I'm unhuman, and runs away. And so the fact that we do now have multiple types of kind of discriminated against groups who are not parallel to actual groups of humans – I think there's a lot you can do with that. I also like a recent issue of Amazing X-Men, um, which is about Anol and Northstar, which talks about the intersection of mutancy and homosexuality and doesn't have one as a metaphor for the other. It talks about them as separate traits, separate aspects of a person. And well, and as, as intersecting vectors of identity and also of, of cultural oppression and marginalization, which I think X-Men 600 actually nails incredibly, incredibly well the scene with them. Um 
kid and adult Bobby talking about that. Yeah. I think yeah, does totally. a really beautiful job. We talked about that at some length in the video review, so I'm not going to go into it at length here, but, but yeah, I think, I think that's, that's my go-to for that particular, particular intersection. Oh, cool. All right. Well, so I was going to ask another question, but it looks like we've got a Skype call coming in. Uh, hello? Hello. Hey, this is Logan. Can you hear me? Like the connection here is kind of weird, uh, but I got an email. Uh, no, you're uh, good. Uh, where, where are you anyway? Oh, I'm in Westchester. Oh, are you visiting family? I'm sorry. We dragged you away from holiday stuff. Shit. Sorry. No, I wouldn't say family exactly. I met, I met the Xavier Mansion. What? Uh, no, no, I was just surprised. We don't need the music. Seriously, though, Logan, how does that work? Well, Hank McCoy's kind of been going through some stuff, and he's kind of been on edge. Uh, and they figured it'd be kind of a good, you know, exercise in having him take a break if somebody ran a game for him for their annual game night. And I guess somebody Googled RPG and X-Men at the same time, so here I am. Oh, man, that is so awesome. Is it awesome? It's awesome, right? Uh, it's pretty intense. Hank has some very strong opinions about acrobatics rules. Man, running games for superheroes has got to present some pretty unique challenges. Yeah, mostly with telepaths. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep secrets when you're running the game. And then there's Longshot, who just crits every damn time. Of course he does. Man, I so want to play with him. Is the name thing awkward? Because I mean, like you and Wolverine 1 and, you know. Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess there were some jokes at first. Eventually, everybody just kind of got used to it. I do still get some really weird emails that were intended for Wolverine. Anything classified? No. Honestly, the worst are the drunk texts from Sabretooth. Ouch. But all in all, it's been pretty neat. The holidays here are really kind of special, you know, communal. Right now, they're doing a big secret Santa exchange. They've got a big tree, and there's a guy in a Santa suit and everything. Uh, what sort of gifts do the X-Men give, though? Um, a lot of them kind of use their powers to make it special. Uh, like Forge made Jubilee a PlayStation 6. Storm gave a coupon that's good for, quote, one beautiful day. Aw. And uh, Iceman was Wolverine's secret Santa, so he made a curling rink out in the yard. Wait, is Laurie even actually Canadian? Oh, it's not that Wolverine. It's actually Logan. Since this is a holiday special, the current lineup is kind of this dreamtime gestalt X-Men. Rogue probably fared the worst in the gift exchange, to be honest. She got gloves for like the eighth year in a row. Uh, I think she threw them so hard across the room that they left a dent in the wall. Man, see, I would have gone with designing women on DVD. Like, I feel like Rogue would be super into designing women, right? Uh, but anyway, that's cool for everybody else. But what about you, Logan? Did you get anything? Yeah, well, Gambit was my secret Santa. So if anybody wants this signed photo of Gambit, I can hook you up. Is something going on over there? We're getting a lot of noise. Oh, I guess nobody knows who exactly organized the gift exchange or who the guy in the Santa suit is. I gather that everybody figured somebody else invited. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, Santa's taking off his beard and it's happening again. It is I, Mr. Sinister. I am the secret Santa. It has been me all along, and none of you suspected my merry master plan. For decades, my marauders have delivered toys for my genetic workshop, specially designed to transmit your DNA to me. <laughs> Guys, I gotta go. Something just exploded. There's clones of Jean Grey everywhere. I'm gonna... I'll see you. Um, Logan, hello? Are you there? Hello? Is he okay? Was that... 
Nathaniel S. Oh, that's not good. Uh, you know, it's the X-Men. I'm sure they'll take care of it. I'm sure he's fine. I mean, it's Logan, so it's probably the cartoon version of the X-Men, which means if nothing else, he's got a much better chance of surviving. He does. Well, anyway, uh, Logan, if you're still alive and you can hear this either now or after the fact, thanks and uh, happy holidays. Okay, so back to the questions here. I'm curious as to why, out of all of the titles that you had available to you, did you guys gravitate towards X-Men? Now, Miles, I know you were introduced to a bunch of different comics when you were younger. And then, Jay, you uh, grew up in the pop culture vacuum. <laughs> so yeah. what? Uh, since you started reading these things separately, what brought you to the X-Men over anything else, I guess? Is well, I mean, my, in, in my case, the answer is basically Miles. By the time I got into X-Men, uh, we were living together. Miles had been reading X-Men. He loved X-Men. I think we've mentioned that he was he was telling me X-Men uh, story arcs as bedtime stories over our first couple of years of college. <laughs> and we brought, all awesome. of his, we brought all of his comics up one summer and I just just mainlined them, read through. And when you spend that much time that intensely with a set of characters and a set of stories, I think, at least if you're me, you end up pretty attached to them. The ways that I interact with pop culture tend to be granular and obsessive. X-Men is really perfectly primed for that. Um, yeah, it was the right series in the right place at the right time with the right level of access. Yeah. And you said you're a continuity nerd, too, I right? Am, yeah. I am a hardcore continuity nerd. Okay. <laughs> I like the complicated stuff. I like the the convolutions you have to go through to make it make sense. I like going back and finding shape and form and meaning where none was necessarily intended. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, yeah, like you were saying, a lot of it was just that was what I was um, exposed to. The comics that I that I read when I was a kid um, were largely just what I had around. And my father was a huge X-Men fan. So that was most of it right there. Oh, OK. Gotcha. But I think what made me stick with it, because I started, you know, then buying X-Men on my own. I didn't just read through what was in the long box and stop. What made me stick with it was just, I think, the sense of camaraderie. X-Men's always been a team book. I mean, the Avengers started out as a bunch of solo heroes that were just sort of thrown together to sell another book. With the X-Men, teamwork was there from the start, which actually makes me wonder why I never got more into Fantastic Four, because that's part of that, too. Well, they're, they're, they're more about family. And I guess that is a different thing, yeah. I mean, teamwork is really... The X-Men team model is really more about chosen family, and that's a, that's a concept that's always appealed to me. I mean, I was a child of divorce, and so I have some some issues with family myself, most of which I've thankfully gotten over. Um, but just the idea of having the people that you want to accomplish a task with, the people that you're around, the people you spend all your time with, uh, become part of who you are. That was always super appealing, especially when like some of them had blade arms or threw cards <laughs> or could control the weather or whatever. I mean, that just makes everything better, right? And so, you know, and also like I was mentioning before, the whole idea of, uh, diversity being a plus of differences being a good thing. I never really felt like I, I fit in. I was, I was not a popular child. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And so the idea of not having to change who you are to be liked was really cool also. So, you know, half of it was these are awesome powers and half of it was I kind of wish I could be on the X-Men because then my life would be awesome. I also really liked the way Alan Davis drew hair. That was a, that was actually a selling point for me. <laughs> no way, really? That's awesome. Yeah, the amazing, spectacular swoopiness of Alan Davis hair definitely definitely was part of what kept me. Oh, it's man. funny that you say that because when, when we started recording, I don't know how many uh, episodes before I you know, started on here. Like, I don't know how many episodes you guys actually talked about Alan Davis, but like it, the first time you started mentioning that when I was sitting here, I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what she's talking about. Like I, That was Doug Ramsey. We were talking about why everyone keeps on saying that Doug's handsome. And my theory was that it's because he has Alan Davis hair. 
You know, it's weird because like when I started reading comics, I was young enough. I don't know if I just didn't have a very visual brain, but I actually didn't notice who did art ever. Like I would, I saw uh, Ramita's work on X-Men in the 90s. And I remembered that was sort of weird and blocky enough that I noticed it. And Sienkiewicz's art just confused me. But other than that, I couldn't (laughs) tell anybody apart. It's really only been since doing the podcast that I've started really getting an eye for that. Yeah. Alan Davis was definitely one of the very first artists whom I could consistently recognize or whose work I could consistently recognize. I have no idea what he actually looks like. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the, hair aside that he has a very specific way of doing like metallic things yeah, like so like the, yeah. the the wolves you guys were talking about uh like that to me is very indicative of his style like yeah, so if i see that and it's a lot of stuff is really shiny he does a really good job of making the costumes look shiny instead of just like fabric or spandex you know so yeah, yeah I guess also I did read Excalibur a little bit when i was a kid before the comic books got taken away from me <laughs> oh, um man. So I'm assuming that comics are your favorite storytelling medium, specifically for X-Men. Uh, we know, of course, there's the 90s cartoon, and we know, of course, that you guys have been doing reviews of uh, X-Men Evolution. But what else in the pantheon of X-Universe stuff do you guys also like? Okay, so for me, a lot of this, uh, with a lot of this, I go back to when I was a kid, because as much as I work on X-Men now, um, when I was a kid, it was just sort of like a fixation. Nobody, uh, I didn't have any listeners, nobody was paying me, it was just, I'm gonna focus on X-Men because I love focusing on X-Men. And so, I think for me, it's, it's sort of random stuff, like these old action figures I had, you know, um, Storm had this glowing light-up lightning bolt in the front of her outfit, and Archangel could shoot little white plastic things that you would lose all the time that were supposed to be as flechettes out of his wings um so it was stuff like that and i mean i was never this sounds weird i was never a very imaginative kid in my play mm-hmm. i would mostly just sort of organize my action figures and sort them in different ways which so- probably sounds really sad and weird but it no, was that's adorable it was very satisfying <laughs> um and so, yeah, I just spent so much time doing that. And a lot of the time, because I could only, I couldn't buy comics, um, regularly. Like I wasn't getting every single issue of the books that came out because I just couldn't make it to the store that often. And so a lot of these characters I'd even have action figures for, I didn't really know who they were, especially as the toy line started developing to get even characters like freaking Senyaka. Like who, who, who remembers Senyaka at this point? Not me. Aside from, from the action figure, which was really cool. Um, and so there's that. There was also this, it was like a board game card game. And I feel like some listeners have mentioned it on the blog at one point around the time we did the role-playing uh, summer special. Oh, right, yeah. But it was, I think it was like X-Men Red Alert or X-Men well, Alert been, we've been or something. we've seeing ads for it starting to show up in the comics. Yeah, and I used to play the hell out of that, mostly with myself just at home because, again, my method of play was super weird. Do you still have that? Is that still in your mom's house somewhere? I don't know. Oh, my God. Can we try to track it down next time we're in Florida? <laughs> Absolutely. I really want to play that. <laughs> so what about you, Jay? Well, I kind of, again, I kind of got to everything at the same time. So there's that. I Cartoon-wise, I have a lot of love for, for the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon, the tragically single-season show. Oh, it was so good. Um, featuring my favorite voice actor as my favorite character, <laughs> which was what originally sold me on watching it in, in the first place. Um, wait, 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 wait. Who's your favorite voice actor? Uh, Nolan North. Okay, cool. Hands down. Come on. I'm not a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> there are other valid options. I there mean, are lots of great voice actors out there. Jennifer there Hale, for instance. <laughs> Jennifer Hale is in Avengers EMH as Carol Danvers, isn't she? Oh, and she's, she's so good. She's so great. Yeah. She's so good. There's there's an episode where she and she and Agent Brand yell at each other a lot, and it's just amazing. And oh, God, that's that's another really good show. Oh, God. I'm trying to think of my, my definitive X-Men versions and moments. I mean, I, I really like that. I really, I, I like toys and action figures. I think of the two of us, I am at this point the person who collects them. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Way more than me at this point. And I've started tracking down older ones. And I really love the oddly specific ones. Like there were a lot of X original X Factor action figures, which, again, I'm sort of trying to, to track down. But I have I have a talking Cyclops. Mm hmm. And yeah, I I like the specificity of old action figures and toys. I really enjoy that. I think that's that's something that you don't see as much with comic book derived figures right now because they're not being sold as toys. They're being sold as collectibles. Well, I mean, with the toys, you kind of do. But like with, uh, let's say, the Batman toys, if you walk through a toy aisle, it'll be like Arctic Assault Batman, you know. OK, electric- Batman toys are all hilarious. I will <laughs> I will fully acknowledge that. But it's not just Batman that does that. Like you'll have these versions of characters that are for some hypothetical weird purpose where there's some strange color and they can yeah. shoot a weird projectile. Totally. But like with X-Men, you could be like, all right, here are 15 different Wolverines, but they're all Wolverines from different specific points in continuity and they probably also shoot a weird thing but you know still yeah those points of recognition are are things that i really enjoy all right so you guys are coming up on two years of doing the podcast you've spoken with some really awesome fantastic guests writers etc and i'm curious do you have any like pipe dream or penultimate guests that you really want to get on the show well the obvious one and i i feel like i should qualify that this is someone we're in touch with and working to make the like logistics have been why this hasn't happened yet not lack of mutual interest is is obviously chris claremont although man i am kind of terrified like it's gonna be like that scene in community where where lavar burton uh shows up and troy just sort of freezes like (laughs) no seriously chris claremont is so nice he is he is like he is the nicest dude and he gets really excited about x-men he's super easy to talk to you will totally totally (laughs) miles is your deal that you just you really love chris chris claremont but you've just never wanted to meet him in person (laughs) i I just i just worry i'll 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 mess it up right do you want me to like something dumb do you want me to get an autographed photo of chris claremont on the podcast (laughs) that might be safer you know no that would be that would be awesome so he is up there louise simonson again is someone we've we've been trying to make make schedules mesh with for a while now Gosh, who else? I oh man, you know who I really desperately want to get? Not for a while yet, but I really want to get Rob Liefeld on. You know, yeah, I, he I just, is a fantastic interview. He's also, from what I've heard, just like a super nice, enthusiastic guy. He is. He is unsettlingly affable. He is. He is someone who just he like the impression I get from him is he's someone who just really likes liking things. Yeah, well, I, I can certainly and get behind yeah, that. He's 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 an interesting person. Uh huh. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of writers like uh, I really like Mike Carey's various runs. So him, but um, I think for me, it's some people where we kind of have to figure out how to get them on. So, for instance, Kelly Sue DeConnick is an incredible creator. But she's barely in, intersected with the X-Men Well, the way to all. get Kelly Sudeconic on is going to be for her, her to write a major X series and okay. then for us to call her. Okay, so Kelly That's Sue, the order it has to happen. If you're in. listening, please write some <laughs> X-Men and then we would love to invite you onto the show because you seem incredibly cool. Um, Bendis. Bendis would be great. Again, again, someone else we've been in touch with and schedules have just never quite meshed out. I would I would love to do a, a recap of, of his time basically running the X-Line. Um, we, we got Anne Nascenti. I was going to say she was, she, she was, was like very near the top she of that was, list. was yeah. front and center. Um, there are so many people who've done so much amazing, amazing work in this universe. And the trick I think is that we'd like to talk to all of them and we'd also like to cover all of the story and we only do this weekly. And, um, <laughs> you only yeah. do this weekly. Yes. Yeah, no, we, we, we <laughs> get, kind of we get so many, are you ever going to have so-and-so on? Have you ever thought yeah. of having X on? And the answer of the time to have you thought of is is yes and we'd love to it's just a matter of finding a time that fits in and that that fits with their schedule and ours well and and also um it usually works better if we can bring somebody on where there's something relevant that either we've been talking about or that's currently coming out like you know we talked to dennis hopeless because uh, all new x-men number one was just about to start i mean we wanted to forever anyway right right um 
And yeah, we pulled in Cy Spurrier because he'd been writing a Legion book and we had just hit, you know, Legion's debut in, in, in old continuity. Yeah. So, I mean, like we try to be conscious about the fact that we do actually have some listeners that we are their main exposure to X-Men, which is right, still yeah. super surreal and a little bit terrifying. And so, you know, having things make sense, having our guests, uh, you know, have a reason to be there right then is yeah. important, too. You know who else I'd like to get? I'd like to get pe- more people involved in adaptation. Oh yeah, um, actors yeah. like I. I mean, I, I, I just really super want to interview Oscar Isaac anyway, because he's a really, really interesting dude and has really interesting thoughts on a lot of the, the roles he plays. But I would, I would love to talk to some of the people who are behind the current iteration of the X Men movie franchise about what's gone into that and the thought and the process because it's so weird. Yeah, and fascinating. Like I'd, I'd love to get like you know Kinberg and all of those guys. I'm 100% on board with this. Just let me know what I need to do. <laughs> I think that's an awesome idea. Do you know any of them? Can I don't, unfortunately. Let me see if I could just uh, tap my resources there. <laughs> and I would also like, God, I, my, my long list, I'd like to get more editors from the X office who or have spent long periods of time working there. Ideally, who's someone who did during the boom in the 90s. That would be About talking about the shared universe coordination. Totally, yeah. Because the how the sausage is made logistical bureaucratic stuff god i i'm i feel like i <laughs> i'm having a cameron hodge moment here oh no what really interests me you know i i the stories are cool but what, I, what i'm really interested in is the corporate structure no. <laughs> i was about to say like should i protect myself if no, you're I'm channeling good. cameron hodge no, no only only that part i can it, it, can, it can be leslie nope instead She's way less scary. Sometimes. She's intense, man. (laughs) But no, I I would love I'd love to talk to people who could shed more light on the behind the scenes stuff on the the structural and publishing necessities that by necessity informed and interacted with the development of the stories. So just a quick question here, because on the Kaiju cast, you know, we cover Godzilla stuff and the people who are making the very first Godzilla movies, a lot of them have morbidly passed away. Way to go, people. Uh, but <laughs> right? What the hell, even? Yes, but, uh, so I would imagine X-Men, in, in terms of like the Silver Age uh, run, you know, I'm assuming some of those guys aren't around anymore. So if you had the powers of necromancy to talk to the dead, is there anybody who's not with us anymore that you'd be interested in talking to? You? Yeah, like but I... Kirby? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. And it's not even for X-Men reasons, because I think, honestly, the X-Men aren't his best work. But I feel like if you're going to bring back a Silver Age creator... You bring back Jack Kirby, obviously. Well, actually, no, I mean, for for the X-Men reasons as well. Like, I'll agree that his really cool stuff was not really X-Men. I mean, X-Men creatively initially was okay. But um, what I do know about Kirby, what I actually learned from uh, Graham McMillan when he was was talking to Al Collins on the Jack Kirby episode of Into It, um, was that Kirby was, like, super progressive and super interested in youth culture and in changing social norms and social mores. And so seeing the X-Men go from this very straight-laced, straight forward semi-metaphor to all of the directions the metaphor has gone both successfully and unsuccessfully um all of the the diversity and changes that have been added to the book i'd be fascinated to see what his take on that was even though it really has very little to almost nothing to do with when he himself was writing x-men or was drawing x-men yeah and i mean if i was here i'd also be happy to jump in on that necromancy call and just be like jack kirby i love your work okay so if we can just like sacrifice we're all all in agreement let's 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 get on this yeah (laughs) i expect uh twitter to now explode (laughs) okay so i'm also wait a second looks like we got another skype call coming in hello uh hey uh, l yeah this is l collins i got jay's email about needing help for the show so here i am oh awesome welcome happy holidays yeah happy holidays to you too 
So what are you up to? You're in Tennessee still? Yes. I was so hoping that everyone would just show up at the studio. I made so many cookies. I mean, this is a uh, Christmas special, but I don't know if it's that it's not, kind of dude, Christmas no, special. No, no, no. It is pointedly a secular holiday special. And in fact, I am wearing my best Hanukkah sweater right now, okay? It just looks kind of like a <laughs> normal sweater. I yeah, mean. that's the point. Its significance is inflated by proximity to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up Jewish, and therefore that is hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, what's, what's new and exciting, Al? Well, I was just working on putting together... My holiday special, which I believe will be up before this is, which actually features Jay as a guest. It's true. I'm talking about Justice League. Sweet. Yes. I actually uh, found an aspect of Christmas that Jay can be positive about to discuss in my episode. Hey, look, I know you're Skyping in now and the episode hasn't gone up, but I do have Christmas feelings. It's just that they're only associated with Excalibur rather than, you know, Christmas. <laughs> okay. I like that. I find Excalibur sort of Christmassy too. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's because like they live on a windswept island and wear sweaters a lot. I think Alan Davis also just makes everything feel like it's full of comfort and joy and festivity just in terms of the way he draws happy faces and swoopy hair. It's very bright and festive. Yeah, that's true. And Megan is all green and Phoenix is all red. That's true. Although I guess Megan won't be green like for a few months after this part. Oh, right. Yeah. She starts out gold and becomes green later. I forgot. Yeah. Gold is also Christmassy, though. Good point. Well, with that in mind, I actually brought some uh, content with me since I didn't know what you had already. Oh, my God. You are the best. You are so wonderful. <laughs> we haven't done the Corbos yet. Can we give Ella Corbo for like best swooping in to save the day? We totally can. All right. It is yours now. <laughs> well, Good I haven't lockdown. told you what my content is yet, so you may want to hold off. On yeah, that. but it's you. So it's going to be awesome. I know you know, but your listeners may or may not know that I do a column for Comics Alliance called Cast Party in which I cast imaginary movies based on comic books. Yeah, or, I think that the last one was for Dinosaur Comics, which was gloriously surreal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I had been wanting to do that one basically since I started, but I knew I had to establish what the norm is before I deviated massively from it. <laughs> yep. So knowing that, you know, it's the Excalibur season, I actually brought some casting ideas for an Excalibur movie. Oh, awesome. So basically what I have here, I wasn't thinking about any particular uh, Excalibur story, just about what I think about when I think about Excalibur. So that means I have the main team, the the original five members of Excalibur, and then um, some villains and one other character that I feel like you can't have Excalibur without. So if it's cool with you guys, I'll go ahead and start with my ideas for who should play the team themselves. Absolutely. Okay, so for Captain Britain... My pick is Richard Madden, uh, and he plays Rob Stark on Game of Thrones. He is young, in good shape, very handsome, and English, which I feel like are the basic requirements. I think he's charismatic enough to be a Captain Britain that the audience will like, even though Captain Britain can at times be um, a little hard to like. Yeah, I mean, especially in the issue we just covered, like he spends about two thirds of the issue being a total jerk and yet somehow comes out sympathetic. Madden, exactly. Madden I think Richard Madden well. has the skill to uh, handle that. Nice. And then for uh, Megan, I have another performer from Game of Thrones because that's just where I get most of my British performers, Hannah Murray. Uh, and if you only know her from Game of Thrones, where she plays Gilly, she probably seems like a really odd choice for Megan. But she previously played... Cassie on the uh, British TV show Skins, where she had a sort of ethereal quality. And in general, she has a sort of uh, elfin aspect to her, which I feel like is important for Megan. Absolutely. Yeah. If she can do the sort of bubbly, but also sad, but a little bit otherworldly, then yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Now, for Shadowcat, of course, I could just say Ellen Page because 
like she's already shadow cat and in the only x-men franchise that we will apparently ever get because they managed to make it never ending but while i like ellen page very much she's not exactly like the shadow cat that i see in my head and she's also somewhat old for the age that i feel like shadow cat should be in excalibur I can't picture her with swoopy Alan Davis hair, which is kind of a deal breaker for me for Excalibur Shadowcat. Right. I completely agree. That was one of my major concerns, too. So my pick for Shadowcat is an actress named Isabel Furman. A few years ago, she played the title character in a horror movie called Orphan. And she also played the character Clove in the first Hunger Games movie. So she's sort of known for playing creepy, scary characters. Which obviously, you know, would not be the case with Shadowcat, but I feel like she's really talented. Like, they asked her to do things in Orphan that, like, no 12-year-old girl should be asked to do, and she excelled at it. That kind of does seem like any young X-Men character just being put through horrifying situations and coming out the other side. Exactly. And now she's about 18 years old, I think, and she does have uh, hair that can be alternately frizzy and swoopy. And I think she has a really good look to play Shadowcat. Perfect. Bring on the floppy blue sleeves. (laughs) Exactly. Now for Phoenix, Rachel Summers, I decided to go with Karen Gillan, who's best known as Amy on Doctor Who. But she also played Nebula in Guardians of the Galaxy. In Guardians of the Galaxy, she shaved her head. She was bald. And she has naturally red hair. And while I don't think she's ever actually played a role in which she had hair, but it was short, there are a lot of photos of her at like the Guardians of the Galaxy premiere and other post-Guardians of the Galaxy events where her hair was growing back. And she looks absolutely perfect for Rachel Summers with the short red hair. And she's shown a willingness to cut it all off. So I think we can cast her as Phoenix. Also, of course, even though she's actually Scottish, uh, she's done American accents in other parts. So... I think she could do one as uh, Rachel. That was going to be my only question. You're way out of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not sure about this next actor's ability to do the accent that will be required of him. But once I had the idea of him in this role, I couldn't imagine anything else. My choice for Nightcrawler is Danny Pudi, his, who is, of course, uh, Abed on Community. His facial structure is like exactly like Nightcrawler is drawn by Alan Davis. I never thought of that. It's not yeah, quite, but it's was, close, and he tends to get stuck in Abed roles, but if you ever watch interviews with him, he's actually really animated and exuberant. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Nightcrawler that I want in an Excalibur movie is like the Nightcrawler who lightens the mood, which is basically the opposite of the live-action Nightcrawler that we've previously gotten in a movie. And I really feel like Danny Pudi would be able to do a really great job with that. And I suspect he could probably do a German accent. I haven't actually heard him do it. But he's shown an ability and willingness to do many, many things. At least a Claremont German accent. (laughs) Which is not the same as a normal German accent, but it does involve certain words repeated over and over, like unglaublich and mein Gott. Man, this is the the (laughs) only one I'm having trouble with. And it's for the exact wrong reason, which is it's a great casting, but I have one that's stuck in my head already. Oh, what what is is yours? Mine is David Diggs, who is right now best known for playing Lafayette and... Jefferson and Hamilton, um, but has done a bunch of other stuff. He's also an incredibly, incredibly skilled hip hop artist. And um, he's the right kind of Alan Davis pretty. Um, (laughs) But he's also just an unbelievably animated physical performer and acrobat. Well, so when they do the stage adaptation of Elle's Excalibur movie, then we'll cast that guy. I can deal with that. I can live with that. (laughs) So I also feel like whatever the actual plot is of the Excalibur movie, 
you're going to have to have someone as uh, Saturnine slash Courtney Ross slash whoever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, and again, I'm going back to Game of Thrones here, but they just cast every British person in the world in that show. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to say Natalie Dormer. Who oh, plays yeah. Marjorie Tyrell? Yeah, and, um, and plays all of the like sinister, powerful ladies ever and everything. Exactly. She's got that hair, which I don't actually know that she's naturally blonde, but she has had this amazing swoopy blonde hair in many of her roles, and she has this ability to be um, beautiful and charismatic and completely untrustworthy all at the same time. Which is kind of perfect, especially with the inevitable second movie when Satire Nine from the alternate Earth has to come up. Exactly. So then for the actual antagonists of the movie, and I don't want to say villains because they're a lot more complicated than that, but I feel like if you have an Excalibur movie and it doesn't have TechNet in it, that's kind of a waste of an Excalibur movie. I love you so much. You're seriously going to cast TechNet? I am so excited right now. Well, this okay. right here, this is the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't cast all of TechNet, to be clear, because like Waxworks, you know, I'd like, I could say, oh, this actor will play this weird blobby thing. But like, what does that even really mean? I feel like a lot of the completely non-humanoid characters would be CGI. And I didn't want to put a lot of effort into figuring out who would voice them because, you know, that could really go any sort of way. With this exception. I do think that Tara Strong should do the voice of Joy Boy because she specializes in creepy babies. That would be amazing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Licks gerbil booty. Perfect. <laughs> but for the somewhat more human-looking members of TechNet, I do have five people in mind. First of all is Gatecrasher. And Gatecrasher is a big challenge because she is basically humanoid in form, but... I could not come up with a single like famous woman who is built like Gatecrasher. It's not just that she's a woman of size. It's that she also has massively muscular arms. Yeah, she's um, huge in every possible way. She's like just physically everything. Her proportions are not human proportions. Yes, that's also true. The closest I could come to her physicality is, uh, of course, a professional wrestler. Nia Jax from NXT, but she's not even that good at speaking as a wrestler. She's really not ready for this kind of acting performance. So I think what we have to do is cast someone basically to play Gatecrasher from the shoulders up and just use special effects for her overall form. So with that in mind, my choice for Gatecrasher is Kathy Bates. Yeah, I am 100% on board here. I was looking through Gatecrasher's dialogue scenes and imagining Kathy Bates, and I think she'd be pretty ideal. Sweet. Now, for the role of Scatterbrain, I think the best choice is model and actress Cara Delevingne. Basically because Scatterbrain doesn't talk, and Cara Delevingne has the best facial expressions in the world. Perfect. Um, so you get, you, know, you get that sort of uh, dreamy, happy, but also otherworldly look. Exactly. Now, for the role of China Doll, my choice is uh, Tristan Risk who is a burlesque performer turned actress who has appeared in a couple of films by my favorite directors, the Soska sisters. In American Mary, she played a woman who was surgically altered to resemble Betty Boop. And in their segment of uh, the ABCs of Death 2, she played a tentacle monster. So I think her career is really arcing toward creepy snake woman who talks funny and shrinks people into little trinkets. Now there's something to put on the CV. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> this next one is a little obvious, but I couldn't come up with anything less obvious that still made sense. 
the role of Pharaoh, I think, needs to go to Ray Park. Or really, Ray Park plus an extra superimposed pair of Ray Park's arms. So not just CG arms, but actually, like, additional Ray Park arms. Exactly. Ray Park, of course, he's like the sword guy. He plays Snake Eyes in the uh, G.I. Joe movies. He played Darth Maul in Star Wars Episode One. And he like was when the you original Toad, though, really right? Like, really knows how to use swords. He's the guy you want to go with. Oh, yeah, he was Toad, which is weird because Toad doesn't have swords, but whatever. <laughs> you know, he'd be pulling a Chris Evans doing double Marvel duty. And then, since I decided not to go with uh, Nia Jax as a gatecrasher and one thing that i've learned after doing this column for a while is that my readers always get disappointed if i don't find room for one professional wrestler it's become like a hallmark (laughs) so for the role of thug i'm casting a man known as hornswoggle who is a little person who uh wrestles professionally although he was recently uh suspended by the wwe for uh failing a drug test but that's really neither here nor there The point is that he is of short stature and a fighter, so he's pretty ideal, I think, to play thug under heavy makeup. And as long as he can talk like a medieval chimney sweep, then solid. Well, he uh, actually is American, but his wrestling character for many years has been an angry Irish leprechaun, so I think he's right on that track. (laughs) And I feel like TechNet, regardless their speech patterns, doesn't really need to have Earth-recognizable accents. Also true. Yup. I love everything about this cast. Okay, I guess Fox technically has the rights to X stuff at this point. So Fox, the entity, I hope you're listening to this episode. Do everything Al says and you will make millions and millions of dollars. Would you be up for one more off the cuff? Yeah, probably. You mentioned Courtney as the character in Saturnine as the one supporting character you've got to have. And I had guessed that that was who it was going to be when you mentioned that early on. But I thought there was a very slight chance it might be Alistair Stewart. You know, I did think about... Alistair Stewart, but I don't immediately have anyone in mind for him. I would have to give that some thought. I feel like there's any number of BBC actors that could probably pull that off pretty well. For full wink and nod referentiality, you'd want to pull someone off Doctor Who. Yup. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I will say, actually, you know, this is a place where I think we can open it up to the listeners. Cast us an Alistair Stewart. Make your case. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, I would love to hear what the listeners have in mind for Alistair Stewart. I mean, I guess you could get. Arthur Darville. I'd want to dye his hair black, but I feel like his face and general sort of boyish attitude would work well for Alistair Stewart. Also, there would be a meta element to that because he, of course, played Karen Gillan's love interest on Doctor Who. So having him come back as someone who's sort of gazing longingly at Phoenix would be an interesting touch. It's perfect because he's so good at gazing longingly at Karen Gillan. He's so, so good at being out of his depth in time and space. That is Alistair Stewart in a nutshell. So, Fox, if you're still still listening, not only would you make millions of dollars, but you'd make millions more because every Whovian on the planet would be seeing this movie now. Man. Oh, yeah, that's an added benefit for sure. Yeah, El, thank you so much. This was a whole lot of fun. And now I'm going to have visions of Sugar Plum Excalibur movies dancing in my head for at least the next week solid. I should add, I think our listeners mostly know you from your guest appearances here, but also from the podcast Intuit. You have another podcast starting up in the next couple of weeks, right? That's right. Um, Intuit is continuing uh, as it previously has, but I am starting a second podcast because that seemed like a smart thing to do. I am uh, launching a podcast about professional wrestling with my friend and co-host Megan Nielsen. And that is going to be the Hard Times podcast. The current plan is to launch the first episode on New Year's Day. And you can follow Hard Times Pod on Twitter and keep updated on that until it actually launches. So yeah, follow Hard Times Pod. 
on Twitter uh, and um, also into it. And Ellen will and link to all of those in the visual companion. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Happy holidays, El. Uh, happy holidays to you guys. Okay. So as I was about to ask you, if you could individually create your own perfect X-Men team, which team members would be on that team? Okay, so I have like 500 answers to this question, and it changes every time somebody asks me. So right now, part of it is the team members I'd like to see, but part of it is also the premise. What I would love to see would to be sort of like a Doom Patrol-esque, in some ways Excalibur-esque, um, team of just sort of like D-list mutants and uh, X-Men affiliated characters who just dealt with all the weird stuff. This would probably be Ooh, sort of— I'd read the hell out of that. Yeah, this would probably be sort of interdimensional, kind of like Exiles, but a little more of a, of a stable cast and all stuff right, like that. Right. Um so I would see as the leader chamber, Jonathan Starsmore, um, specifically because of this X-Men Legacy issue I was just reading recently, where he was teaching the dealing with physical changes class at the Jean Grey School, um, and answering Rockslide's question about, for instance, why he got horny if he didn't have junk. And I just love the <laughs> idea of Chamber as like an in over his head. I don't know why I'm leading this and I'm kind of bitter about it character. So yes, he would run the team. And then let's throw in some like just kind of weird characters we don't see very much of. So Ariel and Chance from Fallen angels uh corvus uh from the star jammers that character that not many people like with a giant sword and the weird hair um let's throw in frenzy because she's wonderful Anil because i'd love to see more done with the character and snowbird because she's just weird and why not and i feel like those characters would play off each other in strange ways and if they all stayed part of the cast for a long time then you'd get some cool soap opera stuff going on between some very strange characters so um that there you go, man. All right. What about you, Jay? I have an answer to this question, but I'm not going to share it because I still retain delusional aspirations of someday getting to actually pitch it as a comic book. You know what? I'm going to have to accept that, and I do accept it. So that's awesome. I'll tell you privately off the air. Okay, I'm, I'm in. Me, it's I'm in. <laughs> All right. Uh, now I, I, I'm sure listeners have noticed over the past few episodes that you are now going by J. Rachel Edden. I am. Yeah. So if you're going by J. Rachel Edden now, what can people expect in the future of the podcast, as far as the name goes, at least? Oh man, we've been trying to figure that out. So for the folks who haven't been following us in other media, um. I came out as trans earlier this year. I'm going by Jay. I'm using neutral pronouns right now. Um, I am keeping Rachel as a middle name largely for Google continuity purposes at the moment. Um, that's probably going to change in the not terribly distant future. And you know, this has been a, a complicated and bureaucratically complicated process. And we decided we just weren't going to deal with the podcast name question at all yet. Um, now that we've had some time to sit with it, I think, I think what, what's ultimately going to happen is that it's probably that the name is going to change. Again, in the not too distant future to just Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it's going to be the same show. We're the same people. You know, we're going to interact in the same way. It's true. None of that's, yeah, none of that's changing. I mean, we've been together for what, 17 years at this we point? We still know a lot about X-Men. <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, so yeah, the title of the show is going to be changing fairly soon. Um, getting our ducks in a row for that has been complicated. We've got to do a lot of stuff like, for example, our, our, our really cool logo is actually hand drawn. So it's not the kind of thing someone can go in and digitally edit. So we're, we're talking with, talking with our designer, you know, figuring out a way that we can sort of have, everything together to launch at once when we change the name of the podcast. We're shooting for early 2016 for that. Whether we'll actually hit that, I'm not sure. And I wanted to say also, by the way, you know, we've we've talked about this periodically and and how cool our listeners are. And this was definitely something that, you know, this is coming out and changing my name um, as someone who largely works on the internet and invisible contexts is 
was was a daunting process and significantly less so and this very much played out in practice by virtue of knowing who that audience was because you're really cool you are a neat group of listeners and you have been so awesome through this yeah i mean i think we were both kind of bracing for, for impact because everybody's great but you know it's the internet there are some people who are less great yeah we but brace everyone, for impact every time we do anything <laughs> that's true but everyone's been super supportive and i mean for jay and i as podcasters and for jay and i as a couple that is huge like this whole thing has been so much easier just because people have been right there with us have been just like congratulations and now i have also a question about X-Men. super super respectful of our privacy and professional personal boundaries around it which is something else that we really really appreciate and that you have been overwhelmingly awesome about without us even having to ask seriously Thank you. you're so neat and speaking of things we love i think it might be time for the corbos hell yeah that is a perfect transition oh oh i see what you did there <laughs> <laughs> i didn't actually do that on purpose sometimes that shit just happens <laughs> that's okay i think i think we can accept this one as providence and that brings us to the second annual super doctor astronaut peter corbo awards for excellence in excellence For those of you who weren't around when we last talked about Peter Corbeau, he is the most competent man in the Marvel Universe, and we have attached his name to our personal and absolutely definitive X-Universe Awards to celebrate the creators and characters who are displaying similar degrees of superlative competence. We should also note that if you are a winning creator or the creator of a winning work and you would like a real physical Corbeau Award, drop us a line and we will make that happen. We make them ourselves. They involve both glitter and spray paint. And I think this year's might actually be wearable. So yeah, these are awesome and you should totally drop us a line. We'll make you one. Oh man, now I want to win a Corbeau. I guess I'm probably not allowed, huh? You are not. Know. There is a Corbeau related to us this year, <laughs> but it does not go to either of us. You want to start us off? All right. The 2015 Peter Corbeau Etc. Award for Best X Writer goes... To Dennis Hopeless for Inferno, All New X-Men, and House of M. The 2015 award for Best X-Artist goes to... Mike Norton for his work on Years of Future Past. So much rubble, so many great faces. So many tigers. And the Best X-Colorist of 2015... Jordi Belair for Magneto. Seriously, so good. Best Soap Opera. Yeah, Inferno. It's got everything we want out of a soap opera. The Irene Adler Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Book or Series? That is the upcoming X-Men 92 ongoing, written by Chad Bowers and Chris Sims and drawn by Altia from Anzaya. Another named award next, the Harvey and Janet Award for Best Walk-On. Uh, that's going to be the Falcon Pirate from Wolverine's number one. I'm sure he had a name, but he's a pirate-looking dude, and he's got a falcon, and that's his power, and that's awesome. We called him Captain Falcon in the video reviews. I'm, I'm cool with sticking with that. I'm cool with that, too. But that dude, the, guy, the pirate with the falcons. Show me your moves! And after that, the About Damn Time Award goes to... Goes to Iceman, and specifically to Iceman for finally coming out of the closet in all-new X-Men number 40 and uncanny X-Men number 600. Speaking of characters and long-awaited moments, that brings us to the Cyclops Has a Good Day Award for the book or issue featuring the least awful time to be Scott Summers. And that would be the end of Uncanny X-Men number 600 when everything is great. Unfortunately, the same week Extraordinary X-Men number one came out where everything was terrible for Scott, but you know, at least half the books that week, things were not too bad. It was a really good moment too. I think it earned it. Yep. The Shameless Pandering Award goes to... X-Men 92 for fictionalizing us straight into the Marvel Universe. Yeah, we're, we're canon now, you guys. It's pretty we're great. We're so canon. We're also dead, but whatever. And this year we have a new award. That is the Meta Corbo for reintroduction slash use of Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo in a canonical Marvel title. And that goes to Al Ewing for Mighty Avengers number 8, where he is interviewed about the end of the world and he's got that sweet jaunty sailor hat. 
The Best Limited Series Award for 2015 goes to... Inferno, written by Dennis Hopeless, with art by Javier Garon. Yes, Inferno, again, it really is that good. It really, really is. I think, actually, that is our only hat trick book this year. It's got three Corbos. Mm -hmm. The coveted triple Corbo. Here's a big one. Best Ongoing Series. We went back and forth on this for a while, but what we ended up with was X-Force by Cy Spurrier and various artists. It is a wonderful, self-contained series with very much its own voice. Our Rising Star Award for 2015... Goes to Wolverine, Laura Kinney. Yeah, she is Wolverine, no question. And a special award, Best Withering Sneers, because we get to make up our own categories. That goes to Christopher Anka. Who, we should note, owns this category so thoroughly that we decided that he will be disqualified from 2016 and on, at which point the name of this particular category will change to the Christopher Anka Award for Best Withering Sneer in an X-Book. Yep. And speaking of categories we make up, it's time for the didn't fit into any other categories and isn't technically an X-book, but we really wanted to give it an award anyway award. That goes to the Siege miniseries from Secret Wars, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Felipe Andrade. It's so weird. They have Leonardo da Vinci, who's merged with another Leonardo da Vinci, and he's called the Vitruvian Man, and there's an Enlightenment canon, and it's amazing. It made me punch the sky and yell yes and scare the cat. Yes. Scaring the good. cat is an important accomplishment for a comic book. Yeah, we should do, like, scared cat scale for, like, badass yes moments. I think we should. And the Still the Best Listeners of Any Podcast Ever award goes to... You. All of you. We will not send all of you Corbo awards, but we will put up a blank one and you can color them for yourself or send them to each other and set up a massive Corbo exchange, which would be so awesome. Seriously, you guys are rad. Now, we also do have some classic Corbos for the uh, sort of previous material that we've been covering on the show. The Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Award for Excellence and Excellence Classic Edition Award for Best Buried Treasure goes to... Fallen Angels. Now, Fallen Angels wasn't a buried treasure to us, but it has been for a lot of people. You don't exactly see a lot of Fallen Angels spinoffs these days. So, yes, if you have not read that, listen to our episode and then, you know, read it or read it without listening to our episode, but read it. The You Tried Award for Best Effort in the Face of Futility and Inevitable Doom goes to... Magneto as the headmaster of the Xavier Institute, mostly in New Mutants, because, you know, he's trying his best, he's trying to do everything right, and his kids keep running away, and sometimes they die, and he gets more and more frustrated. It's bad times for Magneto. The Jack Kirby Award for Best Intersection of Weird and Epic in a Single Character Design? Walter Simonson for Archangel. Obviously. Seriously, that character design shouldn't work, like, nearly as well as it does. The Improbably Endearing Moppet Award? Goes to Franklin Richards. Specifically in the X-Men vs. Fantastic Four miniseries, but really just in general. This character should be too cute for any of us to actually like, and yet he's so great. The High Bar Award goes to... Bill Sienkiewicz on New Mutants for being the artist to whom we unfavorably compare everyone subsequent on the title. Yep. Speaking of High Bars, the most heroic hair, which will be no surprise after this particular episode, but... Alan Davis. I mean, you could just take people's hair off and have that fight crime and that would be enough. And last, the Most Organized Supervillain Award for 2015 goes to... None other than Cameron Hodge, obviously. I... Oh, yeah. The Leslie Nope of evil. That he is. So that wraps up the Corbos. That is it. And I think it's time for our outro. God, this has been so nice. I really like doing the holiday specials because the summer ones, I say like we've done more than one, are, are kind of, you know, they're structured, they're organized, they're a lot of fun. But in this one, I feel like we just kind of get to ramble and, and, and be people in ways that we don't always let ourselves be on the podcast. Yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoy that as well. I mean, not having to race the clock, not that we race the clock exactly with the main episodes, being able to just throw in a lot of fun stuff and have it be very tonally different from one feature to the next. That's cool. It's cool just sort of virtually hanging out with all of the listeners. It's traditional at the end of the year to kind of sit and look back on how things have gone and how they've been and, and 
2015 has in a lot of ways been kind of a shit show. But <laughs> one of the consistently positive things in it for me has been the podcast. We did our first convention this year, our first two live convention shows. Yeah, Rose City and Vegas Valley, both of which were pretty awesome. We actually just got confirmation for our first show of, of 2016, too, which is going to be Emerald City Comic Con. Oh, yeah, definitely we are really a good one. excited about. Yeah, man. And we finally, finally got to talk about a comic that we have been waiting to talk about since we started the podcast. And now we have so much Excalibur waiting for us, and I'm super excited. So normally, toward the end of the episode, we take a minute and we thank some of our Patreon subscribers. We're an entirely ad-free and listener-supported podcast, and that's made possible by the folks on Patreon. And there are tiers of support that come with thanks and silly voices. Now this week, I kind of want to... Oh man, just a sec. Someone else is calling. Hello? Hello! It's me, Chris Sims. I heard someone here doesn't know the true meaning of Christmas. No, no, we worked that out during L's section. The true meaning of Christmas is L. Collins casting TechNet. Wait. So you, got, you already got the you already got the true meaning of Christmas. That's what I was going to come on for. I was I was all prepared. Oh. I have I have the children's choir. I have a terrible little tree that we can wave our hands in front of. Are you claiming a better tree? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I feel like there are, could potentially be some more details other than L casting TechNet. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm no expert myself. Like I said, I grew up mostly Jewish. Well, Miles, I'll tell you the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> Although now it kind of sounds like I, I'm just forcing you into some cultural uh, norms. That, no, his, that his family celebrates be. Christmas. Like, yeah, what the hell, dude? You are so much more into Christmas than I am. Like, you are why we have a tree. You are why we do presents. Like, if it were up to me, we would watch Hogfather and then not make eye contact for two days. And that would yeah, be well. it. <laughs> well, I gotta say, I'm really surprised by that. And, and I'm really surprised specifically that you are not a bigger fan of Christmas, since Santa Claus is canonically the most powerful mutant ever recorded by Cerebro. What? Wait, 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 wait. I mean, we know a lot about X-Men, but I missed that one. Oh, did you guys miss Marvel Holiday Special 1991? Because I didn't. <laughs> 1991 was a dark time, but now I'm curious. Well, there is a story in Marvel Holiday Special 1991 called A Miracle A Few Blocks Down from 34th Street. It is by Scott Lobdell, Dave Cockrum, and Joe Rubenstein. And in that story, on page two of that story, it's the lead story in the holiday special, Cerebro records the most powerful mutant ever registered. And later in the story, it turns out that that mutant is Santa Claus. Or at least someone claiming to be named Chris Gringle, who is dressed like Santa Claus and who has the ability to turn the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants into action figures. So it, it fits, I think. It it might be Proteus, I guess, but it's. I think it's Santa Claus. It could be probably. Jim Jaspers, could be, um, what's his name, Jamie Braddock. There are a lot of reality well, warpers out there, okay? Some of them I are will red. say, uh, the, the mutant in question does wear a weird hat. Although, for Santa Claus, it's, it's not a weird hat at all. Right, yeah. I mean, it's not like a big, uh, sort of tall, Kirby hat with sort of bladed spikes and big circles on it or anything, or? I would like Santa so much more if Santa wore a Kirby hat. Imagine a world where instead of being defined... By Victorian sentimentality, the Christmas aesthetic had been defined by Jack Kirby. I'm imagining that's so hard right now. That is a beautiful world indeed. I did a column a couple of weeks ago on what would have been the best Christmas song for Jack Kirby to do an adaptation of. And someone was inspired to draw Jack Kirby's Good King Wenceslas and put it up on DeviantArt. So that was pretty fun for me to see. Uh, I do also, as my good friends, this will not surprise you. I do have a framed picture of a Kirby style Santa Claus done by Neil Cameron when he was doing his Santa Claus projects in years past. That may be the least so. surprising thing I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, like if, if you knew that existed, you would just assume I owned it. Yes. yes. 
either you owned it or you would have started some like interdimensional Ocean's Eleven style heist to claim it and then, you know, do something sort of good spirity to make sure that the person you took it from was not feeling rough about it. But getting back to this, Santa Claus, the most powerful mutant ever, I think could teach us all a little something about the true meaning of Christmas. Because Christmas, I, I think the children's choir left. I don't know if you want to maybe do, do some children's choiring in the background. Uh, but Christmas is a time to show people that you care about them. It's a time of gift giving. It's a time to celebrate the people in your life by giving them a little token of your affection. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes you don't know what they've got. Sometimes shipping can be tough. If you've got friends all over the world, like we do, I'm on an opposite coast from you. That can make it hard to send presents. But you know what you can send is X-Men 92 numbers 1 through 8 digitally available on Comixology for only $1.99 each. That means you can get the entire series for less than $16 and gift it to anyone. To everyone. You are really <laughs> earning that shameless pandering award. <laughs> Speaking of which, congratulations, by the way. Yes, uh, oh, on, on you. your Corbeau. <laughs> Corbeaus. No, there were two of them. Because Cor- there was the, the Adler that, Award, too. That's Corbeaus with an X. I think that's the plural, correct? It is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> X-Men 92, our first appearances, canonically. I mean, damn. <laughs> I did have someone just recently write me and ask me if you were going to make a return in the ongoing when it comes back. And I just did. It's it's Christmas time and I didn't have the heart to tell them that you were probably killed by cable. <laughs> I feel like probably killed by cable is like a little asterisk under almost everyone's official handbook in the Marvel Universe entry who doesn't show up again sometime and who was around in the 90s. It seems reasonably likely. And I mean, if we're going to go, that's the way I'd like to go. <laughs> Maybe we can bring you back as uh, what are they? Marauders? The cyborgs? Oh, the Reavers. 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 (laughs) I call the tank treads. I always love the tank treads. My entire context for them now has been overwritten by the last summer special. So, yeah. (laughs) All Logan's fault. It's Uh, true. Random note, in the uh, X-Men arcade game, you fight tons and tons of Reavers, and they're all Bonebreaker. They're all the tread guy. I don't know how that works out continuity-wise, but I've learned not to question these things. Miles, questioning these things is what we do for an hour a week. I've learned not to question these things without Googling extensively first. And that's the true meaning of Christmas. All right, well, Chris, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. And seriously, thank you, obviously, for friendship, because we are real life besties. Truth. And that's great. But also thank you for the podcast. Thank you for supporting what me and Chad and Scott Koblish and Matt Miller did on the Secret Wars miniseries. I was so happy to hear your thoughts in the video reviews every time it came out. And we, in a very literal sense, could not have done it without you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, thank you for making our lifetime dreams come true and making us part of the Marvel Universe, but also friendship. And thank you for doing that series right. Like, the more people I know in comics and the more people in comics I count as friends, the more anxious I become about reviewing because I really want to support friends' work and I really want to like their work. And so there's always just this period of brief terror. And like you were saying, you were we're besties. You're my best friend. And I was so worried going into this. It's like, well, I'm probably going to like it. It's probably going to be good. And I know Chris and Chad, they're not going to screw it up. But what if they do? And you didn't. And I really appreciate well, that. Well, now you can worry about the ongoing. We will. Every single issue, there will be cold sweats, <laughs> trepidation, shaking. We'll cry ourselves to sleep every night. Damn you, X-Men 92. Damn you, Sims. And also, yeah, thanks for doing that awesomely and just for being a rad guy. And happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. And uh, I will talk to you soon. So where were we? We were talking about, oh, we were talking about thank yous. Yeah. And man. 
like you were saying, Jay, normally we will uh, thank a couple listeners who have supported us, but really, it's the end of the year. We wanted to just kind of thank everybody, everyone who's listened to the show, everyone who's supported the show, either financially or by telling their friends about it, or just by enjoying it or just by sending us a nice email or whatever. Or again, just by listening also to the folks who have made it possible at a more direct level, our amazing producer, Kyle, our kick-ass partners, our families and friends, everyone who's been a guest on here, um, in particular today. Logan, L, and Chris, who all took time out of a very busy holiday week to come Skype in and be here with us for the holiday special. Yeah, I mean, this show is, you know, it's it's a fair bit of work, but it's so worth it because just every time someone tells us how much they enjoy it, every time someone tells us that they picked up an X-Men comic because we talked about it, that's incredibly gratifying. You know, it makes us feel like we're part of something bigger, like we're part of a community of people who all love the same ridiculous, brightly colored, angsty comic book. And that's great. And that's kind of what it comes down to for me. And actually what doing conventions has kind of underlined too, is that we started doing this podcast because we're fans, because we love this thing. And we wanted to talk about what we love about it and why we love it. And we wanted to connect to other people who didn't connect them to each other. And it feels really right to be doing a holiday thing with this because, yeah, if you had to choose one word to go back to for what I want the podcast to be and sort of what we went into with it would be celebratory. Absolutely. So, guys, thank you for an awesome 2015. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show go up every Sunday at rachelandmiles.com on iTunes and on Stitcher. Please make a point of checking out rachelandmiles.com to check out the visual companions to every episode, along with essays, fan art, and much, much more. Our show is totally listener-supported by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, and we encourage you to do so, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Thanks for sticking with us through 2015. See you next year. And of course, the entire time I'm picturing this scene going on with with Christmas tree sinister because that's my head cannon forever now. Apparently, <laughs> sinister Claus. He yeah. pulls off his Santa suit to show that he's a Christmas tree underneath. <laughs> it's just layers and layers. <laughs> I'm, but it's sinister, so probably he actually was the one who kind of invented uh, the Western conception of Christmas. He like manipulated right. Charles Dickens' genetic line and the Coca Cola Company for Santa Claus to be portrayed a certain he's way. He's from the right era. Uh, see, there and you apocalypse go. Apocalypse is Krampus. That's surprisingly easy to picture actually <laughs> and except he's you know stretching his arms and legs into some like not intimidating embarrassing thing no, as he's Apocalypse doing it is and... basically the robot center from invader zim oh yeah kind of that too yeah because you don't you don't need you know the the, the counterpart thing like santa is a fundamentally terrifying conceit yeah. you know apocalypse he was set he was uh that one name i can't pronounce he was santa claus the death god of the christian pantheon wait i thought we agreed the dark side was santa oh well it's complicated i'm just picturing mr sensory going like on saber tooth on harpoon on vertigo <laughs> <laughs> yeah perfect oh my god if we were gonna do a holiday card this year <laughs> yeah and then, we'll and then whoever is uh who, who ends up being rudolph though that's i don't know Oh, um, I'm trying to think of like a, like a misfit marauder. Maybe that's Madeline Pryor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, or, or, or it could be whoever Malice has. Yeah, oh, yeah. Malice could just be in his nose. Oh, yeah, yeah. the nose is Malice. Perfect. Kyle, you're totally <laughs> right. <laughs> so the X-Men have to start looking around for like anyone with a sus- suspiciously red nose. A diabolical reindeer. <laughs> no, yeah, it's just a regular reindeer um, who's possessed by Malice. <laughs> I love this plan. I love everything about this plan. <laughs> Oh, man. Anyway, I guess we should record some other stuff. But dude, Logan, thank you. That was awesome.